Hello, good day everyone, and welcome back to another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story podcast stream. And I really wish there was a better way to sum all that up in shorter words, or less words, but uh, it's really what it is. Um, this is the 50th episode of this dang story, um, with an average of two and a half to three hours each. I'm running at around 150 hours of this story that I've told so far. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of story. And I still have a ways to go. Uh, but I appreciate you coming by and uh, letting me have the pleasure of telling you this story every week. Um, and I'm excited to get into this next part because I'm going to kill everybody. I'm just kidding. Uh, that's how I uh, liked to start every Dungeons & Dragons session. Um, as a dungeon master, it's important to me that I uh, instill fear directly out of the gate. I'm kidding, of course. But I used to do that all the time. I was like, I was like, now where did I left off? Didn't I kill everybody? And they're like, no, you didn't. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I killed everybody. That was always a running gag. Um, I did that at the beginning of every session for a decade at least. Um, <clears throat> but if you've never been here before, episode 50. What a time to jump in. We're happy to have you. Um, so Merged Worlds is a Dungeons and Dragons story campaign that I have been writing and running all combined close to about 30 years. Um, I started the story, uh, when I was in my early teens, like 13, 12, something like that. Uh, and I started the story, started writing the adventure. Um, and at first it was very loose. It didn't start to become Merged Worlds until about the second year of, of the story and, and starting to really look forward and putting the story far out. So uh, what I do here is every week on Thursday, I get together with you folks and I tell you that story, continuing from where I left off the last time. Um, a brief recap of where we were, uh, the current chapter, if you will, of our story. In this current chapter, it began with um, our heroes and their kingdom of serenity uh, going to war against the evil empire of Oromon. Um uh, it was a pretty exciting war. I enjoyed writing it. My first large-scale war uh, that I ever like wrote out in detail. Uh, at near the end of that battle, um, big powerful guy comes from the sky, crashes in the middle of the battlefield, and basically ends the war. An incredibly powerful person uh, who the clerics of time refer to as the Keeper. The Keeper being the Keeper of the Sands, the Sands of Time. The right-hand minion of the goddess of time herself, Kiara. And this person comes walking up to our heroes to turn out that it is Tobias. Uh, their friend, the wizard, who's been their friend for a very long time, who's started off as just a wee young lad wanting to become a wizard, worked his way up. Um, he says that the time of Ormon has come to an end, and combined with Serenity and their heroes... It is time to bring down the Emperor of Oromon, uh, someone he hates an awful lot. Um, so he sent the heroes on a, the first part of the quest. He said there's things that have to be done, arrangements that have to be made, items that have to be retrieved before we can take on the Emperor, because the Emperor is a powerful dude. He was not at the war. He did not show up, didn't need to, he felt. The Emperor is a pretty powerful dude. So... Um, they were sent, uh, a, a guy shows up in the kingdom soon after that named Balin, who's a dragon hunter. Says that Tobias had found him in the middle of the woods as he was traveling and said that if he, he could tell him where the uh, 
he's hunting a specific dragon, the dragon that killed his father, a black dragon. Um, and they sent him, he's Tobias like, you need these people or you're, you're not going to be successful. So he shows up and the heroes join him. And uh, he, uh, they go on this quest through uh, the realm gate to a very like swampy area. And they find these old ruins of what used to be an ancient halfling city. Um, where the dragon cult and the black dragons live. While they're there sneaking around and being extra sneaky. They manage to destroy some of the dragon's eggs. And when they go into the cave hoping to find the dragon. They end up finding his mate instead and fighting that dragon. In there is a crystal that Dandy... An orb that uh, Dandy is tasked with destroying. She struggles with it, but when she does, she releases the essence inside, which is a dragon's essence, which then goes back to Balin, allowing him to finally, after a very long time, regain his original dragon form. And together with the heroes, they wipe out the dragon, the black dragon, and the um, uh, his minions. They then proceed back to the realm gate in the hopes of ready to go home. Uh, Balin flies them there. Um, but when they land, they are surprised not to just find uh, to the portal, but several of their allies are there as well, with showing uh, recent injuries, and advise them that the Temple of Serenity had been attacked while they were gone. Um, by Oromon, obviously, right? Because that's how I roll. And that's where I left off. Not a cliffhanger, just, you know, I stopped telling the story at that point. Uh, yes, Turtle. They did not know this until he arrived in that middle of that battle. They did not know. Because he shows up and he's like, it's been a long time. And they're like, yeah, it's been like a couple years. He's like, for you, for me, it's been over 700 years since I've seen you. Because he travels. He's a the keeper of time kind of thing. Again, not a god, but chosen to be the right hand of a goddess. Uh, so in that time, he's used his knowledge and his access to the sands to find and learn magic and powers and skills and a type of magic, special type of magic called rune magic, that is lost to time, that no one living knew any longer. And he has gone and spent several hundred years mastering it. And it's now he feels he's strong enough to take on the emperor. He's returned. It's hard to notice that I love this. <laughs> it's okay, Lex. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. I make them reference in my daily life regularly. At least from the original three Star Wars. I didn't like the prequels and haven't seen any of the other ones. Just saying. So, again, the last thing they heard is that the temple had been under siege. Now, Artemis, of course, it's her temple. Artemis is the head cleric of healing. And Lucas, who's the head of the Templars, was there with her. Now, at the end of the last story, I said that I'd made a mistake in the story. I... Didn't quite make the mistake I thought I did, and it was very easy to correct outside the story. So moving forward, it will not be an issue. I thought I'd made a bigger mistake than I did. I did not. So uh, if you watch or listen to the last episode, the last couple minutes, I'm very concerned I made a big bumble. I really, really didn't as bad as I thought. So we're good. I didn't really say too much about what it was, other than Lucas was actually not supposed to be with them, but I had misread my own notes. So we're good now. Uh, but again, we ended the last thing is that the temple had been attacked. Um, and I hadn't quite said what that was. So we're going to begin by telling that story. Um, when they arrive, the person there is uh, Wade, who's one of Mercy's uh, knights, the Knights of Serenity. 
Um, he shows some still minor injuries that appear to have you know, at least be a couple of days old. And he says that they were attacked two days after they left. Now, they've been gone for several days. They've been gone for a while at this point. So they kind of freak out. Also, there is a group of Templars um, led by Ivis Winstrom, who's a captain of the Templars uh, under Lucas, but not Lucas's second in command, uh, but one of the higher ranked ones. Um, but never really popped up much at this point in the story because he, he, the, everybody like Artemis and them knew him. They knew he's one of the captains. Artemis uh, had a list of a lot of the main NPCs of her temple, names of different clerics. For you guys, I've just been like, there's a bunch of clerics there. But she knew the names, who they worshipped, and so on and so forth. Details that to run her temple she kind of needed to know, uh, but aren't as important to the story. I bring those information in as it's needed. Um, so it's need-to-know basis. And today you need to know. Uh, but Ivis is there. Um, advises them that after they left, well over a hundred of Oramon elites attacked the uh, temple. Oramon elites are just that. They're the elite fighting force of the of Oramon. They always are found in pairs. They always wear just in black. Not like ninjas, but they're dressed all in black. They always have two long swords plus one. Uh, and they have a special magic, uh, magically blessed throwing weapons that they use. They're like a ninja star, but they're a bit more round. They're like almost like a semi-flat spiked ball. Um, I actually found them in an, uh, another book of magic items and artifacts a long time ago, and then could never find them again. I, I'd had it in my mind since I saw the picture of them. Never really got a chance to use it. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I didn't quite say what happened. Now I'm going to tell you what happened during that. That's where we're going to begin on this episode 50. But thank you for coming by and hanging out. If you like the story, either today or 10 years down the road when you're listening or watching to it, please remember to click the like button. And if you're new here, please remember to hit subscribe so you can hang out with us all the time. So, Temple Under Siege. is I, I have lots of titles for segments of the story that I never... They're just for me. I'm the only one who sees them. I don't ever tell them. The players never heard them. I title each little section. And it's for me, because I like to use a lot of puns in there. <clears throat> Sometimes. This is called Temple Under Siege. So Ulrich sat in his chair in the main chamber of Serenity Keep. His little daughter was asleep in his arms, even though the room was filled with laughter and noise. Nearby were all of Mercy's knights, including Seth, who had recently returned from the front. He's kind of in charge of the, the border forts uh, along the edge of um, Serenity and Ormond's border. Also, there was Michael Uthwilen and his daughter Petal, who quietly watched the uh, people around here while squeezing Michael's rough fingers. Next to him sat Draven, who was talking to Quan about Quan's new home being built. <clears throat> Excuse me. Draven was mingling with the citizens of Serenity more often and was a frequent visitor to the keep. Everyone was enjoying themselves. Understandably, like everybody's gone, like Mercy and the heroes are gone, enjoying themselves the best they can. When Draven raised his hand, silencing Quan, he'd heard his name cried out very faintly and very far away, and now he heard running footsteps. The main doors to the chamber burst open, and several Serenity soldiers came in. My lord, cried out the first soldier to Ulrich, the, tempens, the temple's beacon fire has been lit. Draven snarled, his face contorting in range, rage. In a second, he'd leaped into the air, bursting through the shuttered window above. 
In that same instant, every knight had drawn his weapon, lining back to back around Michael, Ulrich, and the little girls. Ulrich handed Artis, that's his daughter, to Quan, the two, the two men sharing a look, and then Quan was off. With him was Flynn, who was escorting Michael and Pedal. Flynn cried out for guards, and they flocked to him. In barely a minute, Quan, Michael, and Flynn were locked in a safe room with both children, six additional soldiers there, and another fifteen outside the door. In that exact same minute, the Knights of Serenity were horsed and riding out of the gates of Serenity Keep. None of them had stopped for armor. There wasn't time. Citizens of Serenity were in danger, and they had work to do. As they rode down the road to, from the keep, they were, uh, they were followed by the sounds of men crying, to arms. Draven reached the temple in minutes, moving across the rooftops as quickly as possible. Upon arriving, he was greeted by the sight of Oromanian elites everywhere, more than a hundred, locked in battle with the temple's guardians. Draven immediately waded into them, dealing death to any that crossed his path as he made his way to Artemis's chambers, where he'd left his son. The elites had used stealth, secrecy, and the magic of their goddess to reach the temple unnoticed. Had their target been anywhere else in the world, they would have taken it quickly. I'm going to pause a moment because to remind you that they worship Pandora, the goddess of lies and deceit. Illusion magic, hiding magic, is something that their clerics are quite good at. Would have taken it very quickly, though. But this was the temple of Serenity, and the man in charge of its security was Sir Lucas Bingham. Lucas took his job more seriously than any other man alive. Daily he trained and practiced, guiding his Templars, all men and women, equally dedicated. When the elites reached the temple grounds, their spells were stripped from them by the magic of the temple. They then began to attack a temple they assumed would be unprepared, and they were very wrong. The vigilant Templars on guard gave warning the moment the elites were in sight, and the temple immediately went into lockdown, its beacon fire set ablaze. As the elites forced their way into the temple, they were not met by a bunch of helpless clerics and civilians, as they'd expected. Instead, they were met by a furious wall of armored Templars. It was through these same halls that Draven now fought his way through. Everywhere were elites fighting Templars or clerics. Draven killed any before him, but his priority was his child. Draven came around a corner and stopped, surprised by the sight before him. On the ground lay a pile of Oromanian bodies. Blood splattered the walls. On the other side of them was the door to Artemis' chambers. Standing before those doors were two elven Templars, both with their weapons drawn. Seeing Draven, the two elves stepped aside, allowing him through. Draven moved to open the door, but was stopped by an unseen force. Draven spoke the command word, and the protective spell lifted. Opening the door, he was relieved to see his son sitting with Mia. Standing beside them was Tevin, who also looked relieved. Draven reactivated the protective spell as Seraph came running over to him. Picking up, picking up his son, Draven turned to Tevin. You did well, my friend. With a smile, Tevin replied, it was not I. Seraph heard the sounds of combat before anyone. Tevin explained that they'd been sitting there, Seraph going over his lessons, when the boy suddenly perked his head up and asked, did you hear that? Tevin had not heard anything but Sarah's face grew concerned. The child hopped up and ran to the chamber doors, throwing them open. Standing there were Deramus and Rendolin, the Elven Templars. Uh, these, if you remember, are the Elven Templars uh, of time who were traveling with Alana, who was that clerk of time who left with Tobias, and she left them to protect Artemis and the temple while they were gone. 
The temple is under attack, the boy told them. Allow no one through the door except my father and mother, he commanded. The two elves looked at the small boy, small boy giving them, uh, oh, sorry, small boy giving them commands, and then looked at each other for a moment. Looking back down at the boy, they both nodded. Drawing their swords, the two elves turns, turned towards the hallway, their backs to the door. Seraph closed the door and spoke the code word his mother had told him would protect their rooms. It was then Tevin had heard the sounds of combat. Pulling, in Mia, pulling Mia and Seraph behind him, Tevin called out Draven's name. Draven had heard it. So, that's one thing about Draven. Um, that's kind of a thing. Calling out his name within a specific range, he can pick that sound up out of almost any surrounding sound. It's just one of those abilities he has. As well as, Artemis um, and Seraph each have a necklace with a blood crystal tear on it that was actually made from his blood tear, whatever. Uh, and with that, um, when they call out to him, he can hear that over a much greater distance and he knows the direction they are. Now, within reason, you know, they're thousand miles away, not so much. But, you know, if they're within five or six miles, you know, more than a voice would carry, you know, he can sense that more when needed. And, and he can almost always tell approximately the direction of the necklaces. So he can be like, okay, Artemis is somewhere that way. You know, could be 10 miles, could be 10,000 miles. I just know it's somewhere that way. And he doesn't know if he's getting closer or not. He can just always sense the location of those necklaces. You remember that when they thought Draven had died and he'd gone back to the portal to his own world, Artemis found in her pocket a piece of parchment written with the uh, several lines of the uh, uh, um, prophecy, which Seraph has supposedly come to fulfill. Um, and inside were two of those necklaces. Both Seraph and Artemis wear those. She wears that necklace and she wears her uh, holy medallion of the goddess of, of healing. Um, tons of rings, but those are the only necklaces that she wears. All right. So it was at this time the Knights of Serenity, along with 30 other soldiers, reached the temple. Um, off their horses in an instant, they engaged the enemy, sweeping through them to reinforce and assist the Templars. Let's see. The elites were having a hell of a time trying to enter the west side of the temple. To get to that entrance, they had to travel through the temple's lush and well-cared-for parks and gardens. As soon as the alarm had been sounded, the park itself came alive. Trees and vines lashed out, attacking the invaders. Walls of razor-sharp thorns rose before the doors, forming traps and funnels that pointed and forced the elites into groups of well-prepared Templars. You remember that's because the third highest, tied for third highest rank cleric here is uh, Kelvin, the cleric of basically plot crops. Um, the temple clerics were not prepared to cower in their rooms. While the weaker clerics protected the civilians and injured, the more powerful joined the Templars, healing the injured and casting blessings upon them. Some clerics directly entered combat, unleashing their spells granted by their deities. These clerics were on holy consecrated ground and their spells were increased in power because of it. The Oromanian elites are an incredibly well-trained military unit, master of stealth and weapons and battle. They were, they were an imposing force, and after 25 minutes, the body of each one of them lay dead on the ground. Serenity had lost lives as well, though nowhere near as many as they had taken. In the main chapel, Ulrich stood with several of the temple's uh, captains and such. Uh, 
studio. The temple was being searched to make sure no enemy was hiding and the injured were being cared for and the dead removed. Your Highness, called out a Templar running towards them. You must come quickly. It is Sir Ian. Oric quickly followed the Templar to the section of the temple where the cleric's personal quarters were located. They continued just past that to the area where the children live. As they arrived, they found a group of Templars crowding the halls. Forcing their way through, they found a disturbing sight. The ground was littered with bodies, some Templars, but even more elites. Ulrich could see Sir Ian, Lucas's second-in-command, laying before the door to the children's quarter, his life no longer with him. Standing next to him was a young Templar Ulrich didn't really recognize, but was told was a uh, Templar named Percy. The young man was in rough shape. The sword of an elite had pierced his armor and gone straight through his abdomen and still stuck out through his back. Several elite throwing weapons also protruded from his flesh, and there was an incredibly deep cut on his forehead. He stood there in a puddle of his own blood, weapon drawn and on shaking feet, allowing none to pass. He will not stand down, said a Templar. Sir Ian's last command was to protect the children until Lady Artemis arrived. Ulrich slowly walked towards the young Templar, his hands before him to show he was unarmed. The young man stood there in a slight daze from his wounds, but his weapon never wavered an inch. Percy, said Lucas, calmly. It is I, King Ulrich. Lower your weapon, lad. The battle is over. The children are safe. Percy stared at Ulrich for a moment, a little confused, and then lowered his, then lowered his sword. With a nod and a raspy voice, he said, We held the line. And then the young man fell forward into Ulrich's arms. Ulrich immediately began yelling for clerics. So, Artemis and Lucas, right, and Mercy, of course, the queen, they just hear this news. Well, we've been out here killing a dragon and dealing with that stuff. Our home was attacked by our most hated enemy. Um, Lucas finds out that his right hand is dead, which Artemis is all... You know, she's going to know the guy. They're going to be close as well, um, even though he hasn't popped up much in the story. I've mentioned him several times. Um, but that's a shock. They've lost someone of relatively high caliber. In the, in the game itself, um, Ian was a little bit more active than he was in the story. But he was doing a lot of the outside of the adventure stuff, dealing with things that she would deal with with just regular daily uh, role-playing. So, Artemis, Mercy, they're all right. Okay, we got to get back there as quickly as we can. Everybody's safe, but we don't care. We've got to get back there. And they head to the portal. Now, um, their dragon ally... Oh, hang on a second. Let me make sure I got the right page here before I move forward. There it is. So, their ally Balin, who's now a dragon, or always was, technically, um, which says that they he will not be going with them. He... You know, he, he can, now these dragon senses are a little bit stronger, he can st still smell the scent of the dragon he's been wanting to kill, and he has to go after him while he can. Um, but he does wish them journey and hopes they're, uh, they're, they're home as well, and uh, thanks them for the help that they have given at this point, and that should, should the time come that he can help them return, he will be there to do so. Our heroes then return through the, through the uh, realm gate, back to the Kingdom of Serenity, where they then still have a, quite a horse ride, because there's horses there waiting now. They didn't take horses with them, but the horse ride. Because uh, there's a, a whole 
defensive fort built around the realm gate at this point in case some force comes through. They're not the only ones who can control this gate. Anybody with a key can. So sometimes things pop out of there. Usually relatively harmless people, but all it takes is some bad person to come through there with a key and all of a sudden they're in serenity. So it's got defenses around it. By the time they return, the battle, of course, has been over for days at this point. Um, the corpses have all been cleared, cleaned from the temple. Uh, the evil, the enemy burned, and the uh, uh, their allies, of course, uh, being prepared for a funeral. Um, Artemis, of course, will be there to handle that. Uh, they wouldn't do that till she gets back. Um, but there's that kind of thing. They're going to need to have a funeral for that. Uh, most of the injured are healed now. Um, there are enough clerics there that they got... Anybody who wasn't dead are pretty healed. Um, there were... It was one of those things where I, I had to, unfortunately, break a little bit of a heart there and advise, yes, Artemis, there were probably a couple who died that had you been there, you could have saved. Because you're a more powerful healer than anyone else. With the exception of Tevin. Tevin did step in in that situation. Um... He, he's just about as powerful as Artemis is at this point, um, although he doesn't get quite the practice anymore. Um, he definitely did everything he could, but he has only so many spells himself. Even though he's, he's still definitely boosted being there, as that land is consecrated by his god, uh, which is the same god, Artemis. Um, they return home, of course, to find their family. Very relieved that everybody's okay. That's pretty good. Um... Ulrich lets them know that both Ulrich and Ulrich and Draven have scoured the land looking for any other forces or enemy or someone who escaped or anything. And at this point, they've not been able to find any other signs of any other invaders. Um, the mages, who are uh, a little irritated, you know, they they're, part of their job is to protect from magic. Um, but this group of warriors was, had some of the most... You know, very incredibly high-powered clerical magic of Pandora um, was basically just stronger than what any of them could do with, with their searching spells, because they're always searching and stuff. They've always got that going on. There's always somebody casting wards and things. Um, this is still currently considered a, a kingdom at war with Ormond, so they're, you know, being careful. Um, but this is Pandora's thing. Deception. That's, that's what she does. So this is a spell that's very hard. Uh, for them to sense, and they weren't able to. Um, it wasn't until they stepped onto what was part of the temple grounds, was considered consecrated grounds. At that point, their spell meant nothing, because that land belongs to that god. Um, and, in fact, doing so, you know, even attempting to attack a clerics on ground of that nature, um, is basically picking a fight with that deity. Uh, so, Pandora granting those spells, knowing, of course, that's what they're going to be used for. Pandora's taking a big chance there that she's going to specifically draw the ire of the god of healing. Um, who, on, on a scale of, you know, one to ten, is a higher powerful god than she is. I mean, all the gods are powerful, but he's, he's, he's one of the top two of the, of the good, you know. Um, just like their evil god's more powerful than her as well. Uh, so that's a big gamble she's taken in that situation because whatever her plans are, the last thing she wants is to draw the ire of the direct gods of goods who want to at this point step in and uh, have a hand in what's going on. So there's that. 
Bork has, of course, drastically in increased patrols. Seth has already returned to the border to, ver to do what they can to make sure to find out how they got through the border and, and plug that hole, if you will. Uh, Quan wants to, of course, immediately send out people on a recon, um, you know, his shadows. Uh, but he was waiting until Mercy stayed. Because, again, should something happen, while Uruk's job is to protect the kingdom, Quan's job is to protect the, the princess. Uh, which is exactly what happened there. Uruk does not want to leave his kid. But Uruk's responsibility is the kingdom. So Quan being the next on the ladder and the most capable fighter after that, um, immediately is charged with protecting the princess. Um, which, again, a job he takes very seriously as well. Flynn also feeling very responsible for that job, being a squire for so long. So, given permission, he immediately goes out to send out some of his shadows, because only he knows who they all are, he and Mercy. Um, <laughs> although Draven could probably find out if he really wanted to. Um, Lucas um, has to deal with some things going on in the temple as well. Oh, by the way, hello, uh, Donite and Lego Master. Thanks for coming by. Good day, good day. Um, Ulrich has some things to deal with. Percy survived. Um, Sir, anyway, so I said, Sir, uh, oh my goodness, I'm just saying the wrong word. Let me get back to the name. I'm mixing up two of the names. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Sir Ivis, I met them, who's the other kind of third in command. Ivis is promoted into Ian's rank. Ulrich has to promote him up because they have to have someone in that position. On those situations where Lucas has to be gone, there has to be someone there in charge. And it was Sir Ian who unfortunately passed away in this last bottle, giving his own life to protect the orphans and the children. I mean, we talked about that a little bit last time, that the temple at this point is in the process of looking to build and run a, a place for children with no home, an orphanage for all terms. But at this point, they've been living on the temple. That's where Ian and Percy and a group of Templars were protecting against elites. Um, probably the most help, helpless people in the castle, or in the temple. Um, and everybody in the group died except Percy, and Percy probably should have, uh, with the amount of wounds he has. It took a lot of mojo to keep him alive, and he's still in rough shape. Um, but Artemis did take a moment to specifically speak to him, which, I mean, you got to imagine for this, as a, as a young Templar who probably has seen her a hundred times, spoken with her, been around her, but, you know, it's still like, you know, a guard in the castle, right? I'm a guard. The queen's walked by a hundred times. The queen's directly talking to me. This is a big deal. Um, and so that was, was a pretty big moment for him. Uh, and he, that's the first time his name has ever popped up. Uh, and it definitely put him on the radar, if you will, um, that this is uh, something else. Now, the other unfortunate uh, thing is that Weston, remember Weston, the paladin? He was not here. Um, if you'll remember, I'd mentioned earlier that um, one of his brothers, one of his, his paladins died in the battle. Uh, he, along with the rest of the other paladins, had returned home to bring that body back to the family tomb, uh, to the resting place of that paladin's keep. So he was not here during that. Because uh, definitely, he, he's also pretty high-ranked at this point in the temple. Um, although he's not technically a Templar, he, he, has, he, he can easily say, Templars do this and they will. Lego says, would you be consider doing another AMA? Yeah, I could probably schedule one of those here in the near future. I wouldn't be against it. So there's a bunch of role-playing stuff and things characters had to deal with at this point. They had to have the funeral. Nobody's happy about that. But they had to go through that. Artemis had to say some things. And yeah, I made her say some things. They, we actually role-played it. Because um, it's a big thing. A lot of people die. You know? 
Um, she had to do this again after the war too, but this is a this one's a little bit different, a little bit harder in the long run. Um, so they all kind of you know, Darcy, everybody's chatting. They're kind of hanging out. Darcy has a chance to reach back when when available to speak to his wife through the mirror because she has access to that as well. Um, and kind of keep updates like, hey, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but I want to keep you up to date, so on and so forth. So. All of these things that I'm talking about happen over the next couple of weeks, right? Some damage has been done to the temple. Most of that's been repaired at this point. Um, one of the big heroes of the whole situation, once again, was Kelvin, because a large force trying to get into the, the, the west side of the temple, which is the direction that Oromon is. I mean, it'd be the main side they'd come to. They just could not. Um, the spells and traps and protection spells he had put on the garden. And Artemis was aware of those. That's something he had discussed with Artemis. I would like to do this. And she's like, by all means, yes, if you want to put them. And of course, you know, Miyash is like, are you sure he's gonna, his spells aren't going to go off and hurt people by accident? And, and even, even she knows better, but she's just a curmudgeon. Uh, but yeah, she, she, they knew those spells were there, though they, they'd never been triggered up till this point. They weren't quite sure exactly what he'd done, but it was quite devastating, the damage and such, uh, and how much he hassled uh, the, uh, the, the elites trying to get into the temple. So we go through two weeks. Um, it becomes regular that a large part of the day most of our heroes are staying in the keep. While Artemis is still dealing with things that are temple-based and such, right? Um, she's still, her and Draven, and the, everybody's kind of staying close together. Dar is already staying in the keep. Dandy and Michael at this point have moved into the keep. Even though they've got their little house, with the Ormanians out there, they're not taking any precaution. Every Templar and every guard in the world is on high, high alert and serenity right now. And... Um, all the children, including Seraph, everybody's been brought into the keep. While the temple technically might be a better place for protection in many ways, the keep is just a better stronghold. And for defense purposes, it would be harder to take. So um, Artemis spends most of her days at the temple, but in the evenings, she comes back to the keep. So everybody's kind of staying there, eating there, kind of all living there together under that one roof. Uh, let's see. Two weeks later... That's, that's how far we're jumping, two weeks. So approximately two weeks later, again, it's around early afternoon. Maybe they're all having a late lunch. Uh, the children are all kind of playing a little bit, you know. Several of them are babies, right? So they're just kind of hanging out there. Pedal and uh, artists are. They're, like I said, again, only two months apart. Seraph, of course, is a little bit older, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, let's see. It's during this time... Is it this time or is it the next time? No, it's not during this time. Sorry, it's the next time. Um, yes. So they're all kind of hanging out in the main hall, eating, talking, whatever, making plans. Um, when suddenly, about that time, a magical portal opens right in the middle of the room. Everybody's weapons are out of their sheaths. You know what I mean? Again, there's a wall around the kids immediately. You know, um, while people don't normally walk around the keep in armor, everyone stays armed at this point. And let's be, with Mercy's ring, her morning star, she's always armed every second of the day. So immediately pop Morningstar in her hand. <clears throat> Artemis Ravis, Draven Swords are out. Everybody's right. Port but out walks Tobias. Really thirsty today. Sorry, I keep pausing for sips. Um, 
Tobias walks out with him, he brings Edwin. Um, now, he doesn't bring with him the cleric of time, Alana. Remember, we talked about her, but she's not going to be, but he does come back through with Edwin. And if you remember, Edwin is a mage who was his old apprentice, who's now a full mage himself. Uh, he's come into that, that. He's still a relatively young mage, um, but he's someone that Tobias rel can rely on, someone that rel Tobias trusts. So uh, at the end of the war, at the beginning, at the end of it, when he walked with the head cleric of healing, he took Edwin as well. He and Edwin have returned. People calm down, put their weapons away. He advises them that it's time for the next step in their preparation for their final battle against the Emperor. Before that, though, Tobias humbly apologizes. He is so sorry that the attack happened on the temple. You say that he, he had not expected that. It wasn't something he, he had known was happening. But he should have made better defenses to help with the kingdom here. It's a mistake he won't make again. He said, if anything, though, the one thing they can take heart in is it was an incredibly risky thing for the emperor to do. As I mentioned earlier, it runs the risk of Pandora drawing the ire of a direct god. Um, you know, while her minions may be fighting minions, when a god crosses a line, you run that risk. Um, and Tobias used that to say that obviously means that the emperor's acts are becoming a bit more desperate, something he's never really done before. Remember, he sent people to assassinate Artemis and Mercy and such, but always have attacked them off the temple grounds. This is the first time there's ever been an actual attempt on the temple. Um, but he says their enemies are aligning against them quicker than they'd anticipated, and they must move quickly to be ready to face what comes ahead. Um, he also apologizes because he says the next part is going to be much more difficult. He says that in this there is the chance that lives may be lost, but that if his instructions are not carried out exactly as he gives them, then he can guarantee that Serenity will fall to Oromon within the year. Now, of course, you can imagine the knights are like, no way, I mean, there's no way, but where are they? Are they coming? And, you prefer... and he's like, you don't understand. If he succeeds in what he's doing now, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to stop him. There's a reason why I'm here now and why we're doing this on a specific timetable. Things have to be done a very specific way or we have no chance of success against what he's working on. And they're like, well, what is he working on? He goes, I can't speak about that right now. I can only tell you parts. And he goes, and while I apologize, part of this is for your own protection. Knowing too much may cause you to act differently and that could mess up everything we're working on. So please, I keep these things only as a precaution to best protect you and the people you love. Um, I don't want Serenity to fall. I want to kill this turd, basically. He's like, but you got to do it the way I'm telling you or we've got no shot. They're like, okay, well, what's next? What, what is it we have to do now? He says, well, there are three items that we need. Magical items of artifacts, actually, of pretty, pretty high power. And we're going to need all three of them if we're going to hope to have any chance. And we're like, okay, all right, well, that going and getting magic items, that's kind of how this all started. That's what we do. He goes, yeah, this one's going to be a little bit different. All three of them are in completely different places in the world. Each is very well protected, and it'll be incredibly dangerous to retrieve them. The problem is all three of them have to be retrieved at the exact same time. 
a very not on the exact minute, but within a very small window. You can't go get one, then the other, then the other. It's not going to work that way. You have to go after all three at once. He goes, and finally, and this is going to be the part I know you're going to not like the most. Specific people have to go after specific ones. Well, automatically, Mercy and Artemis are like, I have a problem with this. <laughs> what do you mean certain people? He goes, They'll be, you'll be broken into three groups. In group one will be Mercy, Artemis, Lars, which is one of her knights, Nathalian, remember that's Starsh's uh, archer, the elven archer who's also a prince of uh, uh, the elven kingdom, Centrael, and Michael. It's a pretty powerful group, really, just with Mercy, Artemis, and Michael, and Nathalian's no slouch. Group two will be Darsh, Dandy, Tevin, Ulrich, and Edwin, his former apprentice. So Darsh and Dandy, they work together all the time. That's something they're used to. There's not a problem there. Although Dandy doesn't like the thought, and Michael doesn't like the thought that they're going separate ways. They're not going together. Artemis is concerned. Tevin, you know, like Tevin's a pretty powerful healer. Like I said, next to next to him or next to her, he's second highest powerful healer in this area. Ulrich is the king. That means both Mercy and Ulrich are going to be gone. And then Edwin is their magical support. And then there's group three, which is Draven, Danica. If you remember, I said is one of like the third-ranked cleric under Miasha, tied kind of with Te uh, Kelvin. Jorn, Darsh's assistant. Devin, which is one of her knights. And Flynn, which is one of her knights and was one of her... Uh, or was her squire and is now also one of her knights. This means that Artemis, Mercy, Ulrich, Draven, Darsh, Dandy, Michael... All going to be gone at the same time. That is everybody that they would normally leave to protect the children. Everybody who is their primary defender of the children have to leave all at the same time. Needless to say, our heroes were not happy about this. While Darsh has complete faith in Jorn, Jorn's never been sent on an adventure before. This isn't the life, kind of life he's lived. He's fought, he's battled in arenas and such. All Minotaur have at some point or another. He's fought at Darsh's side on ships against pirates and things of that nature. But sending him out on a dangerous quest to get a magic item to save a kingdom he's never been a part of? Under the command of Draven. Because basically each team gets a captain. It's Mercy, Darsh, and Draven. Um, Danica, Cleric of Healing. Pretty strong. Not as strong as Miyasha, so it's odd that she's being sent, but he doesn't give any explanations about why he's sending who he sends. Of all the knights, Lars and Devin and Flynn are the only three knights going. There are a lot of knights. Why not Quan? At the same time, that leaves Quan in charge of Serenity. I mean, immediately that's the decision that's made. Quan's, after Ulrich, Quan's next in charge anyways. He and Seamus kind of do that. So he and Seamus are both still there. Um, during this time period, uh, as, as an aside, Seamus is working on a business adventure, uh, venture that he's working on that uh, we'll find out a little bit more later, but it first becomes hinted at around this part of the story. Uh, it's just a silly and aside thing that we'll come up to later, but I wanted to reference that this is when that process began. Once later on, you find out what that process is. He explains that Group 1, the Mercy Artemis Group, 
will be going to a very arctic cold region, seeking a magical artifact known as the Staff of Winter. Group 2, which is the Darsh Dandy team, will be going to a very hot desert wasteland, seeking the Bone Lance, another artifact. And Group 3, the Draven Jorn Danica one, will be going to a desolate wasteland where nothing lives, seeking the Hammer of Truth. Tobias explains that he will open up a portal, taking them to around those things. He doesn't know exactly where they are, but he's, he, after all of his research, he knows the closest he can get them. He also says that he is forbidden from going with them or assisting them on these adventures while they're gone. He can't be a part of that. It's part of the rules. You have to remember that he's been, giving a, been given a lot of power by the goddess of time, who is a neutral god. <clears throat> he promised to basically become her right hand in exchange for the give, to be given the things he needs to bring down the emperor, which is his biggest life quest at this point. And she's okay, but there's going to be rules because I'm giving you powers and things that normally, because again, it's the same situation. This is a god directly stepping in against actions um, and a neutral god of that. He's like, okay, if I'm a seventh, there are rules you have to follow. And he explained that earlier on. He's like, there are rules I have to follow. I can't be a part of this. Success or fail completely depends on you guys. If you, fa if you fail at this, it's all over. There's nothing I can do about that. I have to put my complete faith in you. I'll open a portal for each one of you. But he does say this. While you're gone, I will be staying here. I'm going to take up residence in the Mage Tower. I've already spoken with the mages. I'll be staying there. And I will personally be overseeing Serenity. Um, I, something I, I, she goes, I apologize again for the, the attack earlier. It's something that I won't let happen again. I will be here the entire time that you're gone. Um, he goes, he'll, he'll be staying between the temple and the keep. He has a room there too. He can go back and forth. Um, he swears that he will allow no harm to come to a single person of serenity while he is, while they're away. And that they have 24 hours to prepare for their journeys giving them time to pack their stuff, make their plans, and be ready to go. So, they take the next while, the next 24 hours, to do that, to set up things. Lucas, of course, very unhappy. There's nobody going to protect Artemis. I mean, Mercy's there. And she's going with some relatively powerful friends, right? Nathalian, Michael, he respects Michael. Um, and Lars, who's a knight. I mean, these are all capable people, but they're not Lucas. And Lucas does not like it when Lucas is not there to protect it. If Draven was going with that group, he probably wouldn't mind as much. Because Draven's like the one dude, he's like, okay, he could take me. Like, I couldn't take Draven. So I'm fine with that. He's, he's, he's capable of doing what needs to be done. And he loves her as much as I do. I'm not worried about that. And while he does, of course, have complete faith in Mercy and her ability to defend Artemis, he also knows that Mercy has to put her priority as serenity. You know, Mercy's not just looking after her friends anymore, she's looking after the lives of thousands, including her own child. Um, and if having to choose between saving Artemis and her kid, Mercy's going to pick her kid. Artemis would probably, being a cleric, would probably beat the snot out of her if she didn't pick her kid. You know what I mean? Artemis would want her to. That's the kind of thing. Lucas is like, my job is to be there, so whenever these things are happening, I can protect her. Nobody has to make these decisions. At the same time, he's also, well, while well, he does want to go, a little nervous about leaving the temple. 
even though Tobias is like, hey, I'm going to stay here and look after it. He's like, yeah, well, you know, kind of wish you'd done. You know, he everybody's pretty forgiving of Tobias at this point because they know his heart's in the right place. But Lucas is like, yeah, well, maybe not me as much. So Lucas, at, at the end of the day, uh, both Quan and Seamus will be overseeing the kingdom, and uh, Lucas himself will be overseeing the temple while they're gone. Miasha staying to run the temple, of course. Second in command, anyways, it would only make sense. So they take a day to say what's going on. Darsh takes a chance to reach back out to his wife via the via the, uh, the, the the crystal orb. She's not where the mirror is, I apologize. Where the crystal orb. She He left that for her. She knows how to use it back at their house because she wasn't on the island. Remember, he, he flew over himself. Let her know what's going on. She's like, okay, I understand. You're out saving the world. It's fine. Business is good. Everything's going fine here. The kids are growing. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Do what you got to do. So after all plans are made, everything's set up. It takes them while they got that 24 hours. They meet again early afternoon the next day in the same room. Tobias is there ready to send them off. He advises, I'm going to open up a portal, three portals at the same time. Each group will need to go through the portal. It's easy. One, two, and three. That's the order. Group one, group two, group three. Very easy. He gives each leader of each group a small hourglass. He says that all you have to do when you're ready to return is to pour the dirt out of the hourglass. That's it. Just pour it out. Not to make a design or nothing. Pour it out. And I will know a portal will open there. I can open up a portal to that location. Just pour it on the ground. It doesn't have to be all of it. Second a grain of sand hits the ground, I will know and a portal will open. But I won't know where you are. I mean, I'm trying to keep tracks on you with magic and such the best I can, but I don't know how well that's going to work. So I need this to know where you are to get you back home. So, everybody says their goodbyes to people who aren't going, or people going to different groups, wishing each other well. Darsh, um, asking Garrig to help, you know, kind of stay in and help look over the king. Garrig, remember, being the cleric of the god of war. That's the only one of his group not going on this quest, which he's a little irritated about. He's like, why not me? What's wrong with me? I've thumped many of skulls in my day. But then, you know, Darsh is like, well, then obviously they felt we needed some powerful people here to protect the... the, 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 the and the old, the old guy knows Darsh is being nice, but he's like, yeah, I, I got you. I'll stay here and protect. protect. I know this is, plan, this is important to you and these are good people. I got your back. Plus, he really, he really respects Artemis and her temple. He's really impressed with her temple. He hasn't had a lot of experience with non-Minotaur temples. Uh, but the way she runs it, so neutral, everyone being welcome and such, and how what, whatever he needs, whatever he wants to do to worship, it's just allowed, and he's just made, felt very welcome there. And so he's a big fan of that. He actually comes and visits occasionally. Tobias casts his spell. Now when Tobias is casting a lot of his spells, unlike the traditional magic of a Dungeons & Dragons or type of world, what he's doing with his hands is, it's like he's drawing, with his fingers, he's drawing in the air. And as he's drawing this spell, at times, lines of energy will literally appear. And so not every movement, but he might go like this, and all of a sudden, there's a line. And then, there's a line up and down. And as he does this, what he's creating in the air are runes in different, different designs. And very often, once the rune is drawn, interacting with that rune will do something, pushing the rune. You know, grabbing the rune, smashing the rune, punching the rune. Different things can, 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 and sometimes the runes just do their own thing depending on the spell. But this is a rune magic that he has, which is very, very powerful. So he's drawing these three runes, and then as he pushes them out, they literally go out a bit, and then they create three portals. Um, 
Because this is a magic that I came up with. It's not actually in the player's handbook. And no one else ever has learned it. He's the only one that knows rune magic. So, these portals open. Everyone wish each other well. And everyone goes through. About that time. Just kidding. I, uh, so, the first group that we played, because yeah, i got to play these separately, right? The first group that we played was Darsh and Dandy's group. And I'm going to tell the story in the same order that we played it back in the original day. So Darsh and Dandy are our first group. Now, hang on. Let me do this. I'm putting a paper holder in so I can go back and remember the names of each list. Because <laughs> Lord knows I'll forget it, which one I sent where. So, Because uh, I know what happened then. I had to keep looking back as well. So, this group, which is technically group two, Darsh, Dandy, Tevin, Ulrich, and Edwin. And while Ulrich is the king of Serenity, Darsh is in charge of this group. There's, there's, Ulrich doesn't care. Ulrich is not a guy who seeks power, you know? He didn't seek the kingship. He just fell in love with Mercy. He could give a rat's ass if he's a king or not. Um, when he, he fell for her long before she was a queen, you know? So, they walk through their portal. The sun burns incredibly hot overhead. The air is dry and is so warm it's uncomfortable to breathe. Looking around, all Darsh and Dandy can see is sand. Dunes of it stretch out in every direction as far as they can see. There is little wind and you see no vegetation or any type of structure. By the gods, it's hot, said Ulrich. You can imagine, Darsh... And his armor, which he doesn't wear a lot of armor, he doesn't really wear a lot of chest armor. He's, he does wear like some but like armors, like uh, shoulders and bracers and leg stuff. But most of the time, it's bare chested. Uh, he's still a hairy guy. It's going to be hot for him, you know. Dandy, she, she her stuff probably loose. <laughs> you got Tevin, who even though he's a cleric, doesn't wear clerics robes. You remember that he's uh, what I call tribals, very Native American looking kind of thing. So he just wears like the the breeches, and he himself will wear a vest or no shirt. You know what I mean? Ah, which group took the chest of holding from Ashley said? Good question. The chest of holding goes with Artemis. Um, in fact, that's kind of an unspoken rule with the group, unless otherwise uh, listed. Because sometimes I don't ask them. They go out on an adventure. Unless they tell me specifically that Dandy's taking the chest of holding or Darshaking, it always goes with Artemis. Um, that's a good question, though, because that's not something I've ever really, I think, addressed with you guys. Uh, but that's, 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 that's always been, an, that was an unspoken rule. I'm, oh, next second. <laughs> Thank you. Walk through portal. Just subscribe. Wow, how convenient. Walk through portal. Like, they just walk through a portal. Like, what are the odds, right? That's funny. Um, but yeah, Artemis is the one that always hangs on to that, which means she also has the flying carpet. The flying carpet is kept in the chest of holding. Um, so. And a big reason that Artemis carries that, to be completely honest, is very often she's the one person in the group who's not in melee combat. So in an emergency, while they're fighting, she might be able to throw it down, climb in real quick, and grab something that they need. You know, And that's happened. Or throw it down on the ground so that Dandy can quickly dive in there, grab something, and climb back out again. Um, so Artemis is the one who's more free to literally set it down and open it when stuff's going on. Uh, that's why she became kind of the keeper of the chest of holding. So they had two at the very beginning, but one was lost at the Battle of uh, 
in the valley, valley of sacrifice, way back. Um, so now that they're here, Edwin tells them that he was told by Tobias, because remember Edwin was traveling with him, uh, that once they arrived through the portal that they would need to travel south. Where in Merge Worlds, he doesn't know. It could be anywhere. Remember, Merge Worlds is a huge place. It could be an area of the world none of they've never ever been to. On a map, he couldn't place it. Tobias doesn't tell him because he doesn't need to know. Tobias also only tells him what he needs to know, even though he needs to know more things than everybody else does. Um, he said he did give him some information. They were looking. They have to travel south, and that they're looking for something called the Caverns of Infinity. That's where they'll find the Bone Lands. That's all the directions they have. They're like, all right, we start traveling south, and you know, again, not easy traveling through sand dunes and such. Um, they managed to make their way relatively okay uh, for about close to an hour, hour and a half, until they come to a road. It's an odd road. It's a road in the middle of the desert, and it's more just hard stone. Uh, part of it looking like it's natural, kind of carved from it, and the dirt, kind of, sand, kind of blows away from it. But it's kind of above. It's ra raised. It's a lot of stone and rock kind of things that were put down. It's very, very old. Looking at this road, you can tell it's been there a very, very long time. And one of those things that was built to last. You know, now, Obviously, that was built to be there a very long time. Uh, so they following the road. The road seems to be going from northwest to southeast. They're supposed to go south. They decide to follow the road southeast. The best chance they have of maybe getting to something. If there's a road, a road leads to somewhere. Well... At least it did before the merge. Who knows now? So they travel for several hours. They don't see anyone. They don't see anything. They continue on. And as time moves on, the road appears to be in a little bit better repair. A little bit more, you know, not newer per se, but obviously a bit better kept. Um, what they didn't know is had they gone the other direction, they wouldn't have gone but 20 minutes. The road would have stopped because they would have been, that's some, that was the merge world cut right there. Uh, I'm telling you guys because it's just something important. They didn't choose the wrong way. They did go the right way. That's why I told them to go south. Uh, or Edwin told them to go south. So, um, hello, Averse. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by. Um, so, they're traveling on. Now, after I said they traveled this road for several hours, ahead in the distance... They see something. Uh, I'd like to say it's a structure or a building or a castle or a tower. But what they see in front of them is a city. Um, I wouldn't call it a huge city. It's probably about the size of Serenity proper. Serenity proper growing like a weed, but still relatively young as these go. Um, but while it appears to be a city, it's more anything else lined by very, very high walls. Uh, made of the same, t appears to be the same type of brick as the road. Something very strong, very thick and sturdy. Uh, something that is surviving the passage of time. So the walls itself look very, very uh, old. This is not a new city. They can see it in the distance. Because they can tell it's a city because they see this big wall. They see buildings popping up around it. Um, but there's nothing around the city. A lot of times you find a city, there may be houses and stuff on the outside of the wall. Or farms or tents and tent poles, things where homeless or the poor people live. There's nothing outside at all. The road goes to the town or the city and then it stops. They're like, well, we don't know. If, this doesn't look like a Caverns of Infinity, but it's something. So let's try this first. 
So they make their way there. Now again, it's a group of five people, right? Let's talk about them. Edwin, Ulrich, and Tevin. All human dudes. Ulrich is dressed like a king. He's very hot, but he's got really good armor. Remember, their armor and stuff is custom made by dwarves. They got some good, some good gear on them. He did not bring his crown. He technically has one. So does Mercy. But they very, very rarely wear it, especially on, unless it's an official function. You know what I mean? they got helms they're going to put on. They don't have time for crowns under a helm. Um, but then you have Dandy and Darsh. So Dandy's a kender, which depending on most places they go, is just a problem in general. Uh, and Darsh is a big old scary minotaur. Not a lot of people big fans of that. But they make their way up to the city gates. Now, as they're approaching the city gates, they definitely see movement on the top of the walls. There are people in the city. It's not abandoned. And it's not zombies or people running around like that. They're moving like regular people, even though they can only kind of see heads. Um, but the walls are definitely protected. And they see a bunch of people up there. They get to the uh, gates. And they hear voices calling out, from the, from, the, from the upper top. The gates themselves appear to be some type of wood, although it's very thick. Darsh looking at it, it's like, I couldn't tell you the type of wood. But man, I better make a good boat. That's yeah, kind of Darsh's thought in every situation. Um, <laughs> now I make a boat out of this. Uh, but he's looking at it and he's like, hmm, okay. But the person calls out, but they call it in a language that none of them understand. But they stop, because it kind of had the sound of a you know stop right there kind of thing. These gates are closed. They're not open. And someone calls down and, keep, and it's saying something to them and they, they're like making noises and such and they're making movements like I, I don't understand. And they, may, they probably even spoke out. We don't, I don't understand. We don't speak that language. And amongst them, there's several people here that can speak different languages. Remember? Uh, Darsh can speak Dwarven pretty fluently. Um, things of that nature. Edwin can speak several languages. Mages usually can speak several languages. Dandy's got a couple under her belt. Um, Tevin speaks common and uh, tribal. That's it. He doesn't really speak any other than that. Probably speaks a little bit of maybe some... Probably has picked up some phrases the years he lived on Draven's World, even though there they mostly speak common. Um, and Dandy speaks uh, Minotaur, which is something that she took as they were adventuring. She learned that from Darsh. Because as you level in Dungeons & Dragons, it's possible eventually to learn other languages. As you level up, that skill happens. So um, I always tried to have them have it make sense. If you spent your whole time in the last five years traveling with these people and you need to learn a language, probably need to pick one that somebody already knows and say that they taught you. You don't have to do that in D&D, but if you're shooting for a little bit of realism, it makes more sense. So Mercy picked up a bit of Elven, and Dandy picked up um, Minotaur. I think Darsh also picked up Elven. I can't remember what Artemis picked up. Don't remember. But, you know, that's kind of the kind of how, how we played it out. And they, my players were fine for that. They, they like it to seem at least relatively reasonable. Um, so this person, people are calling out. And then there's a minute or so of silence. And then it sounds like someone else is calling out. And they don't understand what he's saying, but it sounds different. 
And I make a point that it sounds like there's whatever they're saying is very different. The context, even the words sound different. And they're like, okay, they're, they have somebody else trying another language. Fair enough. They're trying to communicate. So at this point, they're like, all right, we don't feel completely threatened. We're not moving closer to the gate. It's a big gate. Darsh might be able to pull it open himself, but it would be tough. Um, but it's a big old gate. So he, uh, you know, they're just kind of waiting. Again, shaking their heads and going like this. They speak out a few more words. And, you know, there, there's a group of them down there. Tall walls, they can see them. Obviously, Darsh is the thing they notice the most. Edwin's like, I can cast a spell that will let me understand what they're saying, but I don't know how well they're going to take me standing at their gates casting a spell. For all I know, they're up there armed, and the second I start to move my hands, I'm going to get an arrow in my throat. You know? Because most people recognize a wizard if it's a world with magic. Wizard casting a spell, they may not take that pleasure. He goes, I could totally fix this problem, but I don't have a way of telling them I can fix this problem without potentially causing harm. And they're like, okay, well, let's, let's be calm see what happens. So, while this is going on, Dandy's kind of been behind everybody. She's kind of watching and looking. She's been listening. She's going, I don't understand this one. Because Dandy's pretty good at picking up languages as well. She's like, I don't, I don't understand that one. One of the thieves' abilities in second edition is comprehend languages. You, you have a chance of understanding the basics of what someone's trying to say just based on their tenants, what few words you know of things that you might be able to put it together. You have a percentage chance, more so than the average person, of from just hearing words, putting them together and having a basic understanding of what is being said. Does not help you read or write, but it will help you sometimes understand the spoken word. And she's been kind of standing in the back listening to see if she can pick up any of this. But nobody understands anything. So Dandy's like, okay, we'll try this, we'll try this. And Dandy decides, so she's, she steps up, and she kind of steps, pushes Darsh aside. She steps up, and she's like, listen, it's very hot out here. Really? Can we please come in? <laughs> she says that whole classic thing that people talk slow, thinking that means the other person will understand them better. Uh, like we tried everything else. Well, Dandy only gets a few words out before they start hearing a commotion up on the, up on the thing. People will start calling out and yelling. And, and, and Darsh looks at Dandy and he goes, I didn't touch anything. I haven't even been near the door. <laughs> I, immediately, I didn't do it. I didn't touch anything. And they're like, Dandy steps back a little bit. And Darsh's like, come on, get over here behind me just in case. He's got his big old shield there, his dragon hide shield, right? Probably strapped to his back at that point. But he probably has got it in his arm now, like, get ready to get behind this thing. Arrows start flinging at our head. But after a minute of commotion going on, they hear the gate crack open. I say that. It sounds like a cracking of rocks. It's clearly on some type of big hinge pulley system, and it's taking a group of people to open it even just a little bit. Which, again, also kind of blends back that this gate is probably not something that opens that often. As it does, of course, the dust and sand falls off it. That doesn't mean it's old, but it's just sand's blowing up against it. For the record, the main reason you'd have a gate like this is to protect you from sandstorms and the weather, but still. Uh, and marauders and whatever. So, the gate opens, and a man comes out. The man is a bit darker of skin. Um, tanned, if you will. Uh, kind of like the... the Classic turban thing. The man appears to be a man of uh, of some type of guard or something. He's definitely armed. 
He's got basically, he's not dressed like as a beggar or something. He's dressed well. Uh, but he looks a little nervous. He comes out. Doesn't look like like a, somebody's super in charge, but he looks like he's you know probably part of the guard or whatever. And he comes on. He's looking back and he sees people like, and he's like, okay. He, he walks up and he kind of looks at them. And he's like, greetings. And Darcy's like, hey, there we go. And he's set back a little bit. He goes, you speak common, is what they say. And he and he's like, speak some common, yes. Uh, so basically, we're pulling people who can speak language just till something came out. And while he's talking to Darsh, his eyes keep Darsh darting to Dandy. And everybody notices this. Darsh, you know, his hand's kind of behind Dandy's back. He's like, he's poking her in the back a little bit, like, say something, say something. You know, he doesn't say that, but, you know, Dandy's like, we're very happy to meet you. And he's like, and he literally takes a step back, almost like he's got slapped in the face. And he literally falls to his knees and starts bowing in front of Dandy. And Dandy's like, see, now this is the type of city I wish I could find more often. Dart's like, shut up, Dandy. I'm just saying, normally people throw things at me. He's like, shut up, Dandy. The man takes a moment and gets back up and asks her for forgiveness. And she's like, Okay, you're forgiven. And literally at that moment, he gets like a, a relief. He's like, oh, thank goodness. He's like, he's like, apologize. We're not able to communicate sooner. Did not mean any offense or harm. And the way he's talking, it's very broken. Like he knows some of the main words, but he's, he's working it out. And they were slow to work with him. He goes, and he goes, why have you come? And he's looking at her at this point. And Dandy's like, um, we're looking for something. Maybe you can help us. And he's like, oh, okay. And kind of looking at his face like, I would like to be helpful to you. He's like, okay. And she's like, and she looks at him. She's like, have you ever heard of the Caverns of Infinity? And dude, you might as well just stabbed him in the chest. Like he stumbles back almost falling down. And he just stares at him and then turns and he starts yelling something in a language they don't understand again. Another commotion happens. And he's like, and he's backing up, and he's kind of putting his hands up, like, hold on, he's back here, goes back in the gates. The doors don't close, but he goes back inside. And they're like, Danny, I'm not sure we should have said that. She's like, well, what else would I have done? He's like, no, 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 you're fine. I would have asked that too. But I know, maybe, maybe that didn't work out so well. So they're out there just a couple of minutes before that man, who again is probably in his 40s, he's an older guy, compared to these guys who are younger. Uh, he comes back out with several more official-looking people. And says, please come inside. He's and you can tell he's struggling to be polite. He's trying to be uh, friendly to Dandy. And they're like, okay, sure. He's like, good, good. And he goes to the door, follow me, follow me. And the other ones wait till they come in and they kind of walk behind them. And they walk in through the door of the city. It's open just enough that Darsh can get through. So inside the city, it's very much like what you're going to right now imagine it looks like. I probably don't have to be very descriptive. Homes carved of sand rock, very old homes, wooden beams and such. Uh, very much, uh, let me give an example. If you ever saw the movie Stargate, and they go to the Stargate 
through the gate to the other planet, and they go to the city where it's all carved and rocked. It's very much like that, except this is a, a city rounded. It's not built into walls. It's purely rounded, uh, a roundish city. It's probably not perfectly round. And there's clearly quite a few people, and they go in, once they get inside, they can see things like plants growing. There's gardens and such. They're like, okay, so they're, they're able to grow food here. They must have some type of water supply. And they're walked through the city, and, and the, every so often the, uh, the, the, the guy who speaks common stops and says, follow? And they're like, we're following. He's like, excellent. And he's leading them towards a large building at the end, which they assume like that's probably where the king or whoever lives. Well, as they get to around the center of the city, sure enough, they come across a giant well. Um, and it's a dual-layer well, which means there's a well on the inside, but it's got pumps and such enough ones that's pulling water up into like a almost like a large trough or basin around it. So people can just scoop water out of that. But it's there's enough water flowing out of there that it's visibly like a fountain. So they have a pretty heavy water supply. Although it's hard for the Darsh being the tallest gets the feeling that that hole's pretty deep. But it appears that they have quite a bit of water supply coming from this large section of water in the middle of the sea. Sure enough, where they're being taken is clearly the home of whoever's in charge. And it's a relatively nice building. Again, this is a decent-sized city. It takes a while to walk through the streets. And as they're coming, I mean, it's not like an overly crowded city, but it's not empty either. You know, you don't see a lot of people walking the streets. It's hot, of course. A lot of people are doing that during the daytime anyways. They're smarter than that. Uh, but they, uh, most people are getting out of the way at the sight of Darsh. Well, Dandy would probably have more an effect on them, obviously, by the way I've explained it so far. Uh, Darsh is who you notice first. Darsh is also not someone that you're normally going to see walking in these lands, uh, at least pre-merge. So, uh, people see him first. Now, the young man occasionally, is when he stops and turns, he's, he's mostly, he's looking at everybody, but, you know, he's like, you, you. But then he looks at Dandy and he's like, follow like come, you know, kind of. He's not like that, but he'll be like, uh, "Follow me, Ariel," and he keeps calling her Ariel. Come with me, Ariel. Ah, Ariel, follow me, please, this direction. And Danny's like, "That's not my name." Darsh goes, "Go with it, go with it." And he's like, "Okay." So they follow him up to these up these big steps into what would be um, the home. Uh, it's a pretty large three story building. It's smaller than Serenity Keep. Serenity Keep. Uh, Probably not even half the size, but it's still very well made. And they go, once you get inside, it's very nice. Relatively fancy. There's tapestries. It's well maintained. Clearly, this is someone of importance or wealth. Um, let's see. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a name for this city. I have a name for a lot of the cities in this type of area. And I did that because... Any type of name that I thought of that sounded like it would be Egyptian or Middle Eastern, like that kind of a city, I obviously didn't want to take one that already existed, right? I want to go to the map of North America or uh, Asia and Africa and pick it. I don't want to do that. I want to steal a name. At the same time, I didn't want to say something that, for all I know, I'm actually saying a word in another language that's offensive. So I just didn't pick one for this. This is a city with no name at this point. Uh, they did ask... What's the name of the city? And I told them I didn't pick one because I didn't want to say anything wrong. They're like, okay, we get that. Because um, by this point, I told the story, parts of it, to different people at different times. Um, 
going to people's house for dinner and sharing some of the story was was a commonplace. I do that once or twice a year. So I was like, well, I don't want somebody to be there, and I say the thing is offensive, you know. So I did not have a city for this uh, or name for this city. In case you're wondering, I do not have one. So they're escorted to the palace and taken inside. A very thin man comes up to them, and he's very well-dressed. Um, and he comes up, and he looks at all of them, and he's, uh, he, he doesn't act quite as shocked as everyone else. Um, but Darsh, again, Darsh good at reading people. Dandy, too, but Darsh especially. Especially now in his work, where he's trying to read people and business ventures, this guy trying to count, that kind of thing. Danny's a little bit more naive when thinking, but Darsh is like, this is a man that right now is doing what he needs to do to main control. He's he's acting calm on purpose. I can tell this. And he made a perception check, and he was able to tell that. The gentleman, of course, standing there gets it after they they come out there, gets a big smile and goes, "Welcome to the palace. Thank you so much for coming." He looks at the young man who who escorted there. He nods. He looks at Danny, nods, and then he gets out of there. Like he doesn't run, but he oh, it's time for me to go. And he gets out of there as quickly as he can. This man goes, I apologize for any difficulties that you had at the gate. Uh, the common tongue is one not commonly not commonly spoken here. And there are very few people that can speak it. Um, we were given word that you were here, and uh we definitely welcome you to the city. Uh, if you will come with me, please, uh, the Sultan awaits you. And they're like, okay, cool. This guy speaks very well common. And he's not the Sultan, because we're being taken to him, so he must be someone of importance, probably a noble or an interpreter, somebody who's very well knowledgeable. Who's the kind of person a Sultan would have around him? Uh, he's basically the Sultan C-3PO, but with not quite as many languages, if that helps you guys with the thing. He's a guy that's good at languages, uh, and that type of person. Uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not a guide. A king would have, uh, not guides, but uh, people that would help him make decisions. You, you'll get the word before I can think of it. Um, so, I don't know I'm drawing a blank on that word. Uh, so anyways, he's uh, taken in, and sure enough, they arrive in... Uh, the, the, the sultan is there, and the sultan is a, a bit shorter of a guy and a little bit chubbier as well, as normally is the case. Uh, but he's still taller than Dandy by far. He's still probably about 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, um, and as is wont to happen, and you're a little bit more wealthy, you are a little bit chubbier. That's how it works. I must be rich. Uh, but no, I mean, <laughs> it's just kind of how that works. So, uh, advi advisor. Yes, that's the word I was looking for, Ashley. Thank you very much. He's an advisor. He's definitely the interpreter, but he's obviously one of the advisors that would help the emperor, someone knowledgeable about business or economics or whatever that case is, uh, to be there to assist and advise the emperor. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for, advisor. The sultan comes up, and the sultan speaks some common as well. The sultan's not an idiot. Uh, and he's very pleasant. And at no, Darsh, you know, talking to these men, while he can see these are people who are definitely trying to, at no point do they feel like, does he feel like these people are trying to turn one over on him. If anything, he gets a bit of a fear that these people are nervous. And as much as they keep looking at him, because he stands out, their eyes are constantly darting back to Dandy. And when they originally begin to speak to Dandy, 
Darsh is the one that starts speaking. He wants them to talk to him. Because, uh, again, he's got some concern now. They're putting a lot of focus on Dandy. I need to pull a little of that focus off. I don't know if that's helping us or hurting us or not. I need to make sure that they know that we're all here capable. He and Darsh introduces them. Uh, you know, and again, let's go to the group. Uh, introduces, of course, himself first, Darsh Fohammer. Uh, Dandelion Nettleleaf. And they're very, hear the name, they're like, Dandelion. Oh, her name's Dandelion. Introduces Kevin, who they recognize that he's a cleric. Once once he's introduced, he steps up, and they see the, they are like, ah, a cleric. You are so well. Because again, the golden ticket, right? Artemis has been the golden ticket these people's entire life together. Uh, Tevin has that same golden ticket ability. He's wearing his medallion that shows he's a cleric of healing. Uh, and if you're, as long as you're not an evil person, that's a welcome sight to see pretty much anywhere. That is not someone who's come here to kill you all and take over your kingdom. That's not going to happen. Um, introduces King Ulrich of the Land of Serenity. And that one they seem interested with. They're like, oh, a king. And we're familiar with the term king. We've never heard of Serenity. And Darcy's like, it is very far away in the, the one of those directions. It's in, very far away. We've traveled very, very far for a very long time to come here. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then he introduces Edwin, who then, again, very easily looks like a wizard. They can tell he's a wizard. They're like, and this is, and they're like, ah, Master Sorcerer, welcome as well. Like, they seem okay with all these people, but their eyes keep darting at Dandy. And Darsh goes, um... And the the, uh, the sultan uh, basically just refers to himself as the sultan. Um, and this is my advisor. You may call him advisor. Um, Darsh is like, okay, thank you for helping me with advisor because I needed that word. Uh, <laughs> and this and this is my advisor, vizier. You may call him advisor. And they're like, okay. And they're like, okay, you didn't give us your names. Gotcha. Okay, Darsh picked up on that. Darsh is not a fool. You did not give us your names. Okay. He doesn't say that out loud, but he, that's, that's in his thoughts. He's like, they were careful not to give their names. Darsh is now putting a picture together. And the person who, who plays Darsh gives me her hypothesis. She goes, okay, obviously they think we're something special. Dandy is either some type of demon or fairy or something. They don't know what a kender is because kender aren't on all planets. She doesn't know what kender, but she looks like something that they think is something else. And probably think that if they do recognize me, I'm like her big hairy servant. Because they remember, they always were trying to direct conversation to Dandy like she was in charge. And she seemed nervous. They think she's more powerful or has some type of ability sway or, you know, just power overall. Could be just not even magical. Could just be, maybe thinks she thinks she's a, a queen of some kind. They think she's something. And we're all here protecting her. This has happened before, but usually it's Artemis that everybody thinks everybody's there to protect. And also, they're concerned enough that they don't want Dandy to know what their names are. And that's not uncommon in many societies, emerged worlds, or even our own. Giving your true name gives the possibility of giving someone power over you. Uh, that's why many uh, very superstitious cultures... Uh, will not will have a second name or a nickname that they give, and it's not their private name. Only those you really trust or love would ever know your private name. It's not spoken in public. Darsh has dealt with many different groups of people, and especially now that he's trying to 
attract more and more businesses. And this is what he comes up with. And he was right on the money. Or she was, the young lady who plays Darsh. Uh, she figured that out. I'm like, that's, you're pretty much spot on. And once you, once you figure that out, the way they act from that point on definitely leads you to continue thinking that. That's, that's not coming away from that at all. And he's like, okay, cool. He goes, I, I, I understand the situation we're in then right now. It's not a, they're waiting to see if we're going to kill them. They're, well, they might be. They're waiting. They're not bringing us in to trap us or kidnap us. They're legit concerned of what Dandy is. So we're not going to say what she is. I'm not going to point out that she's a Kender. I'm not going to point out that, oh, she's just a Kender. Don't worry about it. Because for all I know, this could be keeping us alive right now. You know, this could be an evil city. And the fact that they're genuinely happy to see us is because they think she's going to kill them. I'm not going to take away from that right now. They're being cordial. But after a couple minutes of introductions and this and, and outside of the game, her telling me her hypothesis, which she can't really tell to anybody else. Uh, and so Dandy plays, and again, this is one thing I, I, the group that played Dandy, Artemis, Darsh, and Mercy are really, really good at playing a character that doesn't know something that the player knows. Uh, it's something that I, I was always impressed with how well they separated that. Again, Darsh is played by the same person who plays um, Artemis. So sometimes one of them knows something the other one doesn't. That's not easy to play a character when your other character knows something and your character doesn't and having to play them acting different ways. Uh, they weren't 100% on it. No human being I've ever come across is. Uh, but they were incredibly good at separating that knowledge from the two characters. Um, not everybody can do that. And I normally don't allow two people to play two characters at once just because most people can't. But they did good with it and I was cool with it. <clears throat> so we stayed with that. After a couple minutes of introductions, they're <clears throat> asked to come in. There's a table. And this table, there's a large amount of food that's been spread out. Look, And you can see people bringing in food of all types. There's fruits and meats, uh, probably some type of bird, pheasants and things. Uh, definitely soup, stews, whatever. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Cheeses, always cheeses. All that stuff. Darsh takes a quick look around, does his best to hide his sadness that he does not see any pie on the table. Because that's something he looks for anytime they go to a meal place. At this point, it's such a running gag that she's like, do I see any pie? I'm like, you don't see any pie. She's like, ugh. Um, then he's like, that wouldn't be as good as Molly's anyway, kind of thing. But uh, welcomes in. And says, Please, uh, join us for a meal. Uh, honored guests and things of that nature. And while, like I said, while the emperor speaks, sometimes the advisor does most of the speaking. Darsh is like, okay, everybody, let's have a seat and have something to eat. And they're like, okay. And, you know, the NPCs are giving a look like, do we have to worry about eating this food? Darsh is like, no, it's fine. Darsh steps down and immediately takes a, a fruit of some kind. He's like, ah, oh, thank you for this mango or whatever they had. Takes a bite out of it or whatever. And uh, as soon as they take a bite of it, Sultan and the advisor, he could tell just the tiniest shift of, okay, good, they ate something. You know, like, oh, good, okay, they're... They're breaking red, so they're mortal of some kind, probably. Maybe dark, he's guessing stab at the dark at this point. Maybe he thought we were more, we're actually eating. Uh, maybe this is they're taking this as because we're taking their food, we're happy with them. Uh, but they seem slightly more relieved. And they are ecstatically relieved when they see Dandy eat something. And Darcy's like, Dandy, why don't you have something? She's like, I'm not really that hungry. Darcy's like, Dandy, eat some food. <laughs> he's like, okay. She gets some cheese and starts munching on it. She's like, this is actually really good cheese. He's like, yes, I know. And she, he sees her hand reach out, and he's like, don't touch the butter dish. She goes, all right. Expect eating her cheese. If you remember, their very first adventure, uh, it started off with them in an inn, and she was juggling a butter dish. It landed on Darsh's head, and there's just butter going down his face. It's been a running gag, the butter dish, much like Darsh's pie. 
Dar- Darsh is making the comments. I've taken more damage from a butter dish. He makes references like that all the time. So it's one of those one of those inside gangs of the group. So they're being fed and such, and uh, the Sultan uh, is like, he's like, okay. Um, now after giving men, people to eat and drink and such, the food's very good. Um, it's fresh and such. The wine is very good. It is wine that they're provided. Um, and everybody is enjoying it. Tevin uh, drinks the wine. Well, Tevin doesn't drink a lot of alcohol. Uh, it's just not his thing. Uh, he pretty much only drinks water or fruit juices, oddly enough. There was a reason for that, but I can't remember it off the top of my head right now. Oh, right, because when he was on Draven's World, all the wine tastes like blood. I remember now. <laughs> that's that's why. Because remember on Draven's World, they're all born like Draven's World. They're like vampire-like, but they're not going around biting necks. All the food and the things that are there give the same type of nutrients as drinking blood. And a lot of things have a bit of that blood hint flavor to them. Kind of like for us, everything tastes like chicken. You know what I mean? It's kind of everything has a bit of that taste. There were some things that did not. Water, the water tasted fine just like water. Um, because they need water there as well. But the uh, there were some fruits and things you eat. So he just got in the habit of always doing that. You know, And if meat, if cooked, was fine because it tasted like cooked meat. Uh, but he did stay away from the wine because it always tastes like blood. And he's like, no, no. Even though this doesn't, just thinking about it. I've had, I've, there were many functions on that world where Draven, after Draven became king, that I had to drink it. Not going to drink it if I don't have to. Uh, so he drinks just the tiniest bits. Doesn't taste bad. For him, it's more memory than anything else. I forgot about that part. I never mentioned it earlier. So... They're like, ah, we were told that, so um, what brings you to our, uh, what brings us to our fair city? What brings you here? Danny and Darcy look at each other, and Darcy's like, we're looking for the Caverns of Infinity. And that's one of those mic drop moments for the solo guy, like, oh, I see. Have you ever heard of, he puts his hand up, he goes, I, I, please, I, I mean, no disrespect, but if you would please not say that name again, I would greatly appreciate it. It's the advisor that's speaking. And they're like, okay. Is there a problem? No rare steaks. Oh, steaks are rare, right? <laughs> Cook the blood out of it. I want mine well done. It tastes too much like blood. You can see him wanting that, right? But uh, he goes, if you wouldn't mind, we would ask that you please not say that name within the city's walls. I mean, no disrespect. And they're like, no, we're fine with that. We can... Call it the place? Is the place okay? And the advisor nods. He's like, okay, we're trying to find that place. And the Sultan does not seem happy about that. And the advisor's better at holding a, holding a poker face than the Sultan is. Knows the place that you seek is very dangerous. It's not a place anyone would ever want to go. Why is it that you seek it? At this point, Darsh is like, honesty is our best friend in this situation. I'm going to go with it. He goes, um, it has come to our attention that there is an item there that we need. An item, um, magical item. He goes, I'll be honest, it's called the Bone Lance. He says it. But they don't seem to have a reaction. Okay. He's like, okay, never heard of that. Good. The Bone Lance. Um, and it's there, and we need to retrieve it. Um, the fate of many innocent lives depend upon it. And this seems to be like, oh, really? 
how is it you know? He goes, a, uh, a, a very powerful wizard, a, a being. Caspels uh, let us know that this is where it was, though he did not know where the place was. Do you? And they look at each other for a minute and they shake their head. No. He goes, I, I, goes, I know none that do. He goes, it is not a place that anyone would choose to go. And over the next few minutes of asking questions, they learn that the cave infinity is hidden in the desert. It is the final resting place of an ancient, very evil sultan. And it is protected by great and evil magics. It is fabled to contain the sultan's wealth and power, although all who have entered the desert seeking it have never returned. Goes, some have sought the wealth of this long-lost sultan, but again, even those who go inquiring of it are never seen again. Um, it is a place that is not... Just to speak of it can bring a curse down upon your family or your home. So um, it's not that. Is he, and he looks at me and he goes, he goes, I will ask honestly, is there anything I can do to convince you not to look for it? And Darsh is like, I appreciate your frankness, but no, it's incredibly important to us that we find it. He nods, he goes, he goes, he goes, I will tell you this. It has been fabled to exist within a very dangerous place known as the, Scorp the, the Black Scorpion Valley. Sorry, the Red Scorpion Valley. This is Red Scorpion Valley, which is a distance to the south. Although, again, not a place anyone goes to. I'm like, excellent. Okay, we'll head that way. The Sultan goes, you are guests within our city, and while you're here, you are safe. Um, we will give you a place to stay, any supplies that you need. But in the morning, I would ask that you please leave the city. If you're going in search of that treasure, that's fine. But we would ask that you leave the city and not come back. He goes, I have many lives that I too am responsible for and wish not to endanger them. Darsh is like, okay, you seem like a pretty stand-up guy. He doesn't say that, but that's the kind of thing. Seems like a stand-up guy. Thank you very much. Yes, because by this point, like I said, it's late afternoon. They've been going to eat. We'll rest. He goes, leave early in the morning. We'll give you any supplies you need, although they have most everything. They really didn't travel that far, and they had 24 hours to prepare. They have a chunk of water on them, but filling up the water before they go is probably not bad. He's like, yes, that, yes, that would, we definitely accept that offer and, and we appreciate your hospitality. So the Sultan arranges for them and they ask, you know, what's, what do you need? Water, things of that nature, what we can carry, so on and so forth. He goes, these will be, these will be prepared for you by tomorrow. Um, my advisor will take you to uh, rooms where you may rest for the night. Um, I'm sure you understand that the guards outside the door are as much for your protection as ours. And they're like, yeah, we're cool with that. Don't want us wandering around. We understand. No problem. You're being very kind and polite here, and they don't seem turdy, so it's okay. So sure enough, after they eat and drink, they go to their rooms. They're each given their own, but they're all in the same, like in, in a hall, like kind of across from each other. Sure enough, there are already guards standing outside the door. Uh, very large men who don't even come to Darsh's shoulders. And there's times that walking through doorways in this place, Darsh does have to stoop a little bit. Uh, this is not definitely a Darsh-built building. So they're like, okay. So in that direction, he told us, we need to go towards this 
Red Scorpion Valley. The first place. Okay, we'll go there first and see what happens. They talk a little bit. They, when they go to their rooms, they're not supposed to leave their rooms. They don't really get to talk much that night. But they decide to get a good night's rest and head out in the morning. They're going to leave relatively early before the sun's fully up. Travel in the cool as long as they can. About that time. It's middle of night when the attack comes. Against many people, the assassins would have been very, very successful. Our heroes, not so much. Each one, while they are in their own room, had their own way of making their own precautions. Uh, and it's quite common that they uh, be prepared for things. Uh, Darsh, of course, barely slept. He wanted to, he was kind of tired, but Darsh is used to that. Dandy trapped the place. Anybody coming through there is going to be setting off one of her traps. She's going to know about it. Um, as for uh, Tevin and Edwin, they have magical ways that they can cast to protect themselves. That's fine. Ulrich is really, again, the only one who doesn't have a special skill other than Ulrich is just a very light sleeper. Uh, again, so he... Uh, when the, and then again, they're nervous here. While they feel relatively at ease, they're still taking precautions. So when the assassins attack, how they got into the room, they don't know. They're just there. But all of them, one way or another, are, are aware of it and are able to respond. And the assassins are very quickly entered into combat. So uh, there are two that come in Darsh's room. Darsh's a big guy and he's pretty strong. And people expect him to be strong. They don't ever expect Darsh to be as strong as he really is. Not only is he just overly strong as far as a minotaur, he has a couple of magic items that increases that even a little bit more. So when they attack and he gets a grip on them and literally just starts smashing them together, it's dark in there. He's got his, his infravision and such. So, you know, humans don't. Maybe they didn't know he did, right? Um, he and Dandy are the only ones in this group with any form of infravision. These two things are like, we're being sneaky. He's like, not so much. He grabs and just starts smacking them together because they're relatively small. Uh, and they start making some very gross noises after a minute. It's the crunching. And they're just trying to stab with a knife. And he's getting cut in his arms. He's like, stop it. Stop. He didn't grab one. Dandy, on the other hand, four come into Dandy's room. She had more than come in anywhere else, which would have actually been a problem had she not set traps. And the young... Lady playing Dandy told me she was setting traps. We talked about it, what she set. Uh, two of them were severely injured before they barely got a foot in the room. Blades and such, knives, and all sorts of stuff. She explained what she wanted. I remember the exact layout, but I remember that two of them were seriously injured in like the first beginning of the first round just by setting off traps, which made her aware. And then she's up tossing daggers in the dark with infravision, which again, the way that the people they fought acted, it's like they didn't know, expect them to have that. For Ulrich and Tevin, each had two. Edwin had three. He's a mage. They expect that. Uh, he might be bigger problems. His spells were enough that, uh, again, anyone coming in there was basically almost like sleep spells. So he was able to kind of take them out as well. Uh, but the noise of this immediately calls the guards. The guards open the door. It's not the guards that attacked. The guards seem shocked by this. <clears throat> Everyone who attacked them, once, they, once the light comes in the room and such, and you can get a good look at them, are dressed all in black, black turbans, black turbans. but you know, and they look very shocked to see these people. None of them are taken alive. 
I, I have to stress that. Even the ones that they tried to take alive were unwilling to be taken alive. And were doing everything they could while they were going down to try to kill our heroes. Our heroes were well out of their league. They clearly did not expect them to be what they are. They Maybe Dandy would have been a little bit better had it, uh, they'd been closer taking her had it not been for the traps. It's not long before the advisor appears. And again, he sees what's going on. He's shocked. And he tells them, the first time he sounds like he goes, stay in your rooms. I'll be back in a moment. And he leaves. And he returns again with the Sultan and more guards. And the Sultan goes, I apologize. You're going to have to leave now. And they're like, it's like three o'clock in the morning. Okay. He says, he goes, you have brought doom upon my city. And the lives of my people are now in danger. I cannot have you stay here any longer. The supplies that you wanted are already prepared. I will give you as we said you would. But I must ask that you leave now. And they're like, okay. Sure, not trying to wear out our welcome. We're fine with that. You're not trying to kill us. They were. Like, Do you know who these are? And the Sultan, and they, they, they speak in a language for, and the advisor for a moment that obviously our heroes don't speak. And then the advisor goes, they are known as the Black Sand. No one quite knows what they are, who they are, only that anyone seeking, inquiring, or looking for the caverns of infinity, usually these people come and kill them. Like, not in a, we thought, like, we thought you're safe here. We didn't tell anybody else. Somehow it still got to them. That's why I wanted you out of here. Because we didn't want to bring that down on us. He goes, there are many rumors about them. Some say that they're the long lost, or they're the, the last survivors of the uh, evil Sultan's true followers. Some say that they're uh, a group of brigands that seek the massive treasure themselves and kill anyone who might be trying to get it before they can find it. Uh, because there's many different rumors as to who they are. All we know as is no one knows exactly who they are, where they come from, uh, but to see them usually means you're going to die. And they, again, seem even more concerned, especially in Dandy's room when they find four dead guys. And Dandy's standing there like, what, they came into my room. They're like, It's almost like proving what they thought about Dandy. They're like, okay, all right, well, I, I hate, I apologize. And they're very, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. It's like, all right, they get, everybody gathers their things. They are escorted out. The advisor goes with them. The sultan wishes them well in their quest, uh, but says he would ask that they please never return. And they're like, well, it's fair enough. We, we can do that. The advisor and a bunch of guards lead them to the gate. Almost as much as their protection as for the people in the city. But as they get to the gate, sure enough, there's already a like a wagon or something there with a bunch of water balls. They're, they're able to sling on whatever they want because they don't have a chest of holding. They're slinging on whatever they want to take with them. And they're like, okay, when they, and they thank you, right? Thank you so much. We apologize for any negativity we brought upon your city. When we came here, we had no idea about any of the things you're telling us, only that what we're trying to do is for a noble cause. We never meant you or your people any harm. And the body's like, I, we understand. Um, and, but, and we do wish you the best of luck. And he goes, personally, I, I hope you're successful. He goes, if you are, then maybe people will stop looking for it. <laughs> He's like, you know, that could be, if you're successful, maybe this could end. And he kind of looks at me and goes, he goes, and I'll be honest, I would have never expected to find creatures like you seeking such something like that. So I wish you the best of luck. And he walks back in and the door's closed. And Danny's like, creatures like who? Wait, creatures like who? And the door's closed. <laughs> They never did find out what they thought Dandy was. And no, I'm not going to tell you either. So, now that they've left the city, they know the approximate direction they have to go. They begin traveling that way.
And it's true. The Sultan and the people there were good people. They legitimately were just trying to protect their people. Had they never, had, had Dandy and them arrived and said, oh yeah, we're just traveling through on our way to another city or, you know, we're lost. Probably awesome people. Hey, happy to have, still been nervous at Dandy, but uh, yeah, sure, stay as long as you need. But the second they said Caverns of Infinity, they knew they had to go. So they don't know how far they really have to go. The best information that the uh, advisor could give them that it, uh, the direction they're going will take at least three to five days. Um, now, they had received a little bit of information from Tobias before they left. Tobias gave them information like, you're going to a hot area. If you can, try to travel at night, rest during the day, find a place you can, if you find a cave or something you can be in, stay in there during the day, travel at night, stuff like that. If you find happen to find a place with pure, with water, Make sure you have Edwin magically tested to make sure it's not bad water because there could be bad water there. If it's not, if you need to take a day to rest there, you've got to go as quickly as you can, though. Don't waste time. So they're going along. Uh, let's see. Got it. So... Uh, on their first day out traveling, it's you know, boring. It's them traveling dirt. It started off on a bit of a road, but then the road faded away just into dunes. Um, and they didn't find anything outside to say this direction either. Uh, anything that would imply that there's anybody else living outside the city. The city seems to be very self-contained, but very isolated because of that. Um, so as they are traveling... Uh, the first day, nothing else did what they could. They traveled as much until it got real hot in the middle of the day. Put up some tents and stuff they had. Some, put them over their head. Found They came across a rocky thing. They could hang some tents up to give them a little shade. Tried to rest as best they could. Travel again as it got started to cool down in the afternoon. Um, on the second day, they were awoken midday by an incredibly large sandstorm. Because I felt it was important that they had a sandstorm. I'd never hit them with one. So they had to deal with the sandstorm. It wasn't magical and there was no monsters. It was just a sandstorm. It was very inconvenient. Um, I think there was some issue with some lost water, if I remember correctly. But they're traveling for a distance. And when they finally, on their third day, uh, relatively early in the day, they come across an oasis. It is the exact typical oasis that you would expect. Got a couple trees, there's some water, some lush plants growing around it. The water's bubbling up from some underground source. Of course, this is the merged world, so it's possible that this thing didn't even exist before merged world. You know, well, the trees are tall, so I guess they probably did. But you know what I mean? Merged world's water come all the water sources come up from the ground. So many of these things have places may have more water than they ever did before the merge. Um, they're like, well, here's a chance to water, and they're like, all right. Dandy, you know what to do. Dandy goes in, sneaks around, looking for traps. No signs that anybody's been here. Although with the sandstorm yesterday, they probably weren't going to find any footprints anyways. But he doesn't find anything that's trap-like. Edwin casts a spell. Doesn't detect magic anywhere. Dandy brings him some of the water. He tests it. Water's perfectly fine. They're like, okay, this is pretty good. It's relatively early in the day. It's going to be hot soon. Let's camp here. We've got lots of water supply. Head out as early as soon as we can, as soon as it's not as hot. Fill up our waters and buggeroo out of here. And they're like, okay, that'll work. So they set up their camp, their little tents, and they're resting. Now, everybody takes a chance to rinse off a little bit in the water. 
Ever notice that in the movies, people wash in the same water they drink? I'm just saying. Medieval movie says, I'm going to jump in this pool. Now, let's fill our water bottles. Just saying. You ever watch any movie that's medieval in theory? People bathe in the same water they drink. I would not fill my water bottles in the pool, that public pool. But at the same time, if that's the only water source, maybe I would. So, Things to think about. Put that in your mind for the day. So... (laughs) So they're taking turns. Now about that time, yeah, we're going to have some of those today. About that time, something happened. It was Ulrich who was sitting by the water. Everyone else was resting and he was taking his turn at watch. And there's no breeze. It's still hot. He's got a little tent that he's tarp thing over him that they've tied to a couple of the trees so they got a little bit more shade here. It's just maybe four or five trees. Uh, we'll say that they are date trees, so they're able to get some uh, dates off of that, you know, prunes, the things. We're able to get some of those, and they uh, eat some of those. Not a lot. They'll make your stomach upset. Don't want that trouble traveling in the heat. But he's hanging out, munching on a couple of dates, keeping an eye out, especially for these black sand folks. Right? And he decides to get a drink of water. He gets up, he's looking around. Doesn't see anything in trouble. Goes up, bends over, and fills his water skin. The name is called a a Hattori, or Hattori, depending on how you want to pronounce it. We've always called it a Hattori. So Hattori live underwater or under sand. Uh, But what they are basically is a sand crocodile. So... They average 16 to 18 feet in length. Um, They can be underwater or under the sand for very long periods of time. Uh, And as he's bending over, filling up his thing, kind of like the crocodile that jumps out in the first crocodile, Dundee, you young people don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, This thing just comes out of the water at him. Uh, And he managed just to not get bit. He did have to make a roll for that. But he did successfully manage to... He saw the movement, the sand moving underneath and manages to back up just a little bit as the teeth come out. And immediately, of course, he cries out. Everybody's up in an instant. They got their weapons. He's already been fighting for one round without them. But they immediately got their weapons and now they're fighting this thing. Uh, So for the record, I took the time to get pictures for almost every monster we're going to see in the next episode or two. Except for the ones that I created by myself. Uh, but all the ones that are actually D&D monsters, I got pictures of them for you guys. I don't normally do that, but I, I, I had the time today. I thought it might be a nice thing to do. So that is what a Hattori looks like. A primarily desert crocodile that burrows. It could really burrow under the sand where it stays cooler. So just letting you know. So they're fight a Hattori. The battle was relatively quick. Uh, Hattori themselves don't have any special magic abilities that they're throwing at them at any time like this. Uh, It's just a really big creature that has a really big crunch attack. Uh, And it did crunch Darsh one good time. Darsh took a pretty big wound from it. It got caught in the jaws at one point, and it was pulling him back into the water. Um, And uh, at that point, Dandy jumped on its back with daggers. and, And even though it's got very tough skin... Dandy's only carries magical daggers at this point. She's got like eight of them. So she's like magical daggers and this thing going for eyes and head. And it takes only a couple stabs before it finally lets go of Darsh because it's 
Got to get rid of this thing on its back. Um, Ulrich wades into the water knee, knee deep, <laughs> running gag, and starts attacking it as well, while Edwin's casting and Tevin are both casting spells. Tevin, uh, in one area a little bit better than Artemis as a cleric, uh, is definitely way more physically stronger than she is. So even though Darsh is a big, heavy dude, and he got a big leg wound, Darsh can kind of push back with one leg. Tevin puts his arm and starts pulling him back. Uh, and he's heavy! Devin's straining, but Devin, with Darsh's help scooching back, is able to pull him away from the water. Artemis could never come close to picking up Darsh. Uh, but Tevin is very fit. He's in very good shape. He's constantly working out. He and Draven both do. They're in tip-top physical condition. He's probably one of the most buff clerics of healing that walks the land at this point. Um, and again, he's, he's a tribal, so he's also got that born natural, live natural kind of thing. So he eats healthy. Like I said... Blood wine doesn't do any of that. Very, very, very nice guy. Very intelligent too. I love Tevin. Tevin, uh, what was always meant to be something bigger than one hit Tevin, uh, but I did my best to convince them he was going to die. They every time we played, they would like. I, I'm sure he's going to die today. Something's going <laughs> to. When he was the kid, you know, and he's just like a level one. Good times. So they do manage to kill the Hattori. Um and now Edwin has a little different spell he's casting. He determines there's no other ones around. It's just that one. Uh, the water's tainted now. Tevin, or sorry, Edwin and Tevin both have spells that can purify it. So they make a point of cleaning out as much water as they can. Um, and then they cast spell, purify it, fill up their bottles. I'm like, well, let's get out of here now. We just stunk up the water. If people do use this, they're not going to be happy about it. They then left. Now, I'll have you know, just from a D&D point of view, it had loot in its stomach. If it had been a different situation where they wanted the meat or something, Edwin probably cut off several scales, had Darsh chip off some earpieces, scales, took the eyeball out. He's a mage. He wants all the weird body parts, and he's never seen one of these. So they probably took 10 or 15 minutes. He's like, okay, cut that off. And Darsh cuts it off and puts it in a test tube or puts it in a bag or a bottle or something and... Edwin's putting all these things in his robe. He's like, okay, now I need an eye. Give me the eye. Give me the tongue. Can you cut part of the tongue out? Because he doesn't know what, what these things are. He, he's probably never seen this creature before, but that alone makes it valuable. It could be just all not important at all, or it could be really powerful rare spell components. Just looking at it, he doesn't know. Somebody does. And we'll talk about that later. So, they succeed... Still a little hot. They didn't get a lot of rest, but they feel they want to get away from this in case the blood attracts anything else. And that was their big fear. If it's water, anything that needs water is going to be attracted to this. And now there's blood. It could bring things more carnivorous. So they decide to book it out of there. They travel again. Uh, and they go a little bit further until they're able to find, again, a rocky outcropping they can kind of lean up against and try to protect themselves with a little bit of shade. They get a little more rest and they carry on. Uh, because they did not get a good full sleep, both Tevin and Edward did not get to refresh their their spells. What few they've used are used up. They still have other spells, but they did not get a chance to get their spells back. Because you got to have time to do that. That night, about that time, as they are been traveling through the dark, they are set upon again by more assassins of the Black Sand. Out of nowhere. Like, they're just walking through sand dunes, and all of a sudden, these dudes pop out of the sand. And yes, 
They're all dudes. That is one thing I will confirm. These dudes literally pop up out of the sand, start attacking them and stuff. Uh, there's quite a few of them this time, probably about 15 to 20. Uh, and against a regular group of five people, that would probably be all you need. But this is not a regular group of five people. It's got a mage, it's got a cleric, and it's got a darsh. And darsh is 15 people. Uh, not to take away from Dandy or Ulrich, who are no slouches themselves, but Darsh is a Darsh. Uh, so it doesn't take long before everything's dead. <laughs> Again, they search the bodies. They, Other than the weapons, they have nothing on them at all. They don't find any markings. They don't find any tattoos. They did look for that. They didn't find any loot, treasure, money, anything. No magic items, no jewelry, nothing. Only their weapons and their black clothes. They continue on. As it starts, the sun is starting to rise up. They see in the distance what look like almost like large boulders. Different size in the distance. They're like, okay, well, what's this now? Don't have time to camp. Let's keep going. They make their way towards the boulders. As they arrive at these boulders, which are very large, two to three darshes in height, uh, in different shape, they see that it's really just a rock coming out of the out of the out of the sand kind of up on a bit of an angle, and the breaks between them, they can go see, it goes down, like, it cracks through, and, it, and there's like a big crater-like valley there. And, in the middle of that valley, are the ruins of what was probably a pretty good-sized city at one point. Now, the, the rocks are spaced and such enough as they come out, almost like fingers sticking out of, of, around it, but maybe more of them. There's plenty of space to walk between them. And they see this big city of buildings, and most of them are crumbled in ruins at this point, but they're, you know, still, it, it looks like uh, the type of buildings you'd see here, like they saw in the last city. So not anything non-Merge World, like Merge World pulled in New York, nothing like that. It's like the city they just saw. Um, so they make their way down in there. They're like, well, obviously there's something here. It's a valley, so the first thing we need to look out for is scorpions. <laughs> Edwin, can you look, is there a search or find scorpion spell? He's like, no, there's no find scorpion spell. He goes, but, you know, let's just keep an eye out. It's hey, sometimes these things are just named for nothing. Darsh is like, in our line of work, everything, something's always named for something. Keep an eye out for scorpions. But if nothing else, we may find a place to rest. So they make their way down into the city. The city has several large buildings. Large ruins that were probably large buildings. And they're like, let's not go to those first. Let's find a small one, see if it's secure, use it as a kind of a base of operations. It may take a while to search all these buildings. That was Ulrich's idea, and Darcy's like, I like that. That's a good idea. Let's go do that. So they look for one that was relatively small, but at the same time pretty sturdy looking, uh, that Darsh could fit into comfortably, that they all could lay down should they need to, but that somebody just couldn't come up, punch a wall, and cave the whole thing on top of them. And they find that. The walls, the parts that they do find, are very thick and very sturdy. Um, the ones that have collapsed is just due to age over a very long time. Uh, looking at it, Edwin's looking at him and goes, no one's lived here in several hundred years. I mean, easily no one's lived here in several hundred years. This is just empty. At the same time, there's no food, there's no water, there's nothing like that. So they're being very careful not to use too much of their stuff. Intriguing. So they set up their little base of operations. They don't leave a lot of their supplies behind because for all they know, they're going to find the thing they're looking for and then 
portal back out. They don't want to leave stuff here. So they don't want really to leave stuff, but they do find a place that they can use. Check it, search it, make sure nothing's there. Maybe they put a tent or something over the door to try to keep sand from blowing in, or whatever the case may be, because that's an issue. Some of the buildings appear to be taller than they are. That sounds weird. Let me explain. Imagine if this is the building, right? Say this, banding, this building is two stories high, but one story of it's under sand. That makes sense? Like there's a layer of sand higher than where the city was built originally. So what they're seeing of these buildings are the tops of the buildings. That's what they find when they find that first small building. It's actually the second floor. They could go, there's some old, probably was a hole that had a ladder, the ladder's long rotted away. Dandy climbs down there very easily and finds it's just a relatively cool dark room. And they're like, well, if nothing else, as long as nothing comes out of the sand, that could be a place to get some rest here if we need to. But they're not super tired. They said, we're going to go ahead and search the area a little bit first. See if we can find anything. And sure enough, they do. Well, everything looks uninhabited. They, they start searching several buildings. And they, after searching several without any luck, and again, anything that could have rotted, wood, cloth, leather, it's all gone. It's all they find is stone, maybe some busted pottery, you know, that's in, in inside the building that's been in the shade for uh, several hundred years, so it's still there. But nothing of value by any means. No bones, nothing of a person, and they don't come across any scorpions. And that's the thing. There are no scorpions if they come across. It could just be named for that. And they're looking at the big rocks, and they're like, well, maybe the rocks, like if you're looking at it from above ground, it looks like a scorpion, because I'm that kind of DM. Uh, so they're trying to figure out if that was the case, how it got its name, but they're looking at it. They're getting close to going back for the night, and they say, we're going to check one more building. What's the closest bigger building to us? I'm like, well, there's one over there that looks relatively large. And by large, not that it was super tall, but it's wider. Like it was a bigger, wider building. But because it's in disrepair and uh, half buried, you can't really see what it probably was other than it was a building. They're like, okay, we'll go check that one. Well, about that time. As they're approaching the building... The doorway kind of explodes at them. Now, the doorway, you're only seeing about this much of the top of the doorway. The rest is sand. And the sand comes bursting out, and they're, of course, immediately pulling out weapons. As the creature inside the building climbs through the doorway. And they're immediately caught. Do we fight this or not? But then the creature says... Well now, what do we have here? What brings you to my valley? The feminine creature before them, the wings of an eagle, upper head and shoulders of a human, and body of a lion, is a sphinx. And sphinx are not small. Uh, once she comes through that doorway, they can see that building was actually pretty big underground more than they thought. And that door was, this thing probably stands darsh and a half tall at its shoulders. So it's big. It's a big old human head that they're looking at. Edwin's like, make no moves of violence. Some Sphinx are very bad. Some Sphinx are good. Some Sphinx are neutral. Just like humans, Sphinx come in all shapes and sizes. 
And Edwin does not know exactly what kind of Sphinx this is. There are many Sphinx. You may remember they fought an Astro Sphinx very long time ago when they were inside the Space Gem. And they, it was uh, the Spelljammer-themed thing. Very cool. This feminine Sphinx comes out and speaks in very good common. At least, they think it's common. And that's intriguing, because when she speaks, her words at first don't sound quite right, but she, they completely understand them. Edwin understands that's part of her one of her magical abilities. She's speaking in such a way, uh, with, as part of a spell, that you understand her regardless of whether you understand the language. Any intelligent race is going to understand what she's saying. Um, within reason. And again she asks, what brings you to my valley? I don't get many visitors. And they're like, well, um, we're going to take a gamble here, and I apologize if we say the name of something that makes you angry. We're not trying to. She's like, okay, go ahead. Because we're looking for the Caverns of Infinity. <laughs> like, like, we've said it. We're not supposed to say it. We know that. And she gets to look like, ah. She goes, I was afraid so. That's usually the only time anyone comes here. Well, best of luck to you. And turns and starts to walk away. <laughs> and they're like, oh, wait, ma'am? Excuse me? Ma'am? That's Orc. Ma'am? She turns and goes, yes. He goes, you, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't know where it is, would you? I mean, it's your value been here. Just saying, uh, not trying to cause any problems for you. You wouldn't know where it is by any chance, would you? And she gets a smile. She goes, I have some knowledge on the subject, yes. And they're like, awesome. How would we get that knowledge on the subject? They're very nervous. She's very big, and the fact that Edwin's like, don't make any vomos, lets them know Darsh, okay, even Darsh is like, okay, Edwin knows how strong I am, and he's telling me not to, not to screw around. This is something that can hurt us. Okay. Huh? Hey, Muttley, welcome, sir. So, uh, she smiles, and she goes, well, I am one to barter. But, I couldn't even begin to speak such a subject with just anyone. But, if you can answer my riddles, then I would be open to potentially bartering for that information. And they're like, okay. And sure enough, I had chosen like 10 or 12 different riddles. And they had to roll... They pick somebody to roll. I think it was like 12-sided dice or something like that. And that were the three riddles that she chose. So I didn't pick them specifically. They got to roll for them. And then they got to answer the riddles if they could figure it out. And I gave them some time, uh, you know, and I tried to help a little bit. And I may have let them be goofy. I think they had to get one out of three right or something like that. I made it, tried to make it as easy as possible. Here's the kicker. I still have all of the riddles. I didn't write down any of the answers. I looked at them today. I have every riddle sitting here. I don't remember which three they picked. And I don't remember the answers to any of them. 
But I have all of the Sphinxes riddle. Now, I probably could have Googled them and found them all. But I'll be honest, I came across that about 10 minutes before the stream was about to start. I forgot. I, I, I didn't know I still had them. I happened to come across them while I was looking for some other information. And suddenly, here I was with this list of riddles that I couldn't figure out the answers to at first glance. And I didn't really have time to look them up. So, I have all the riddles. Um, and for those of you who are watching this today, tomorrow, or forever... Uh, if you go to my website, onlydraven.com, there's a link at the top you can click on that'll take you to my Discord channel. There's a thread there that's a Merge Worlds thread. Um, I will post some of those riddles uh, over the next few days, and I'll pin them. So if you're watching this five years down the road, they'll be saved up top. So if you'd like to know what the riddles are, I will put those up uh, probably tonight or tomorrow. Uh, give me a day. But uh, swing by and I will put up the, the riddles and I'll make them a big pin thing and I'll leave them up there forever so that way you can come and listen to them uh, or come and check them out at your own case because I don't know the answers. I can't tell you if you're right or wrong. Not without doing some research. Don't remember where I got them from, but uh, I think I may have come up with one or two, but the rest of them I found in other like resources. But anyways, I wanted to, I wanted to mention that. I do have the riddles. I just don't have the answers. I felt bad, so I couldn't talk about that. But yes, they were able to get uh, over some time and, and working with them. They were able to solve enough of it. Uh, because again, they're standing there with Edwin, who's incredibly smart and a wizard. So as the NPC, I'm playing a character that would have a bit more knowledge. And so I'm able to help a little bit. I'm actually playing three of them. So um, Edwin definitely was the, the, the key to this situation. That I remember. Well, I may not have answered them all directly... In fact, one of them, I want to say, they snagged themselves pretty quickly, whichever one it was. But then the other, the other uh, riddles that I gave, uh, Edwin helped as well. So it kind of said, oh, well, this is why Edwin's here, to help in this situation. So after that, she's like, okay, excellent. You've, now I'm open to bartering. I have information that will aid you. I will assure you of that. I have no reason to trick you. But trade for a trade. Either you, I must get some type of information from you that would have value to me. Or I will trade this information for a magical item of value. So they're like, well, okay. So they start talking for a minute. And they're like, I can't think of anything we know that a Sphinx would want to know. Right? Like, they're like, uh, Realm Gates, maybe. But I'm not giving her my key. Um, you know, what, what are we going to tell? So they decide to try to barter with a magical item. And I want to say that Darsh... Or Dandy had a magic amulet of some kind um, that they used. And it was the only thing they were willing to part with. And it was something like an amulet of free action. Something that went underwater. They, I think Darsh had that. It was like an amulet of, of free action. So free action means when you're underwater, you get to move like you're not underwater. So, you know, you're underwater, you're swinging your sword. Instead of it going really slow, you're moving at regular speed. Um, which does make swimming difficult, for the record. But it can be beneficial. Um... Especially in combat. Um, so while she wasn't that interested, of course, from assuming, it's still a magical item and not something she's seen before. She agreed to take that in exchange. So the information uh, that she shared... Let's see here, where is it? Alright, she says, so what, you're, what they're actually looking for, the cavern, or, uh, the cavern are not here. What they're looking for is 
to the southwest, uh, several days travel, a day or day or two day travel, day and a half travel. You'll come across a great crack in the earth known as the Sultan's Scar. Uh, it's a large canyon under, underground, but it's like a big break. It goes very deep. Um, the entrance to the cavern is down inside of there, but each day at dawn, uh, it appears, it moves, and then at dusk, it disappears. It's only there during the day, and it's in a different spot each day. I can't tell you which one is the right one, but I can tell you that going in the wrong one is instant and certain death. I, she also says that near to where she is, there is a temple where her understanding, the sultan, the evil sultan and all that stuff from back in time, uh, was worshipped like a god. In that building, they may find answers that can assist them. But she has never gone in there as she can sense uh, great evil inside. But it never leaves. So she doesn't mess with it. It doesn't mess with her. So she points out and tells them which one it is over there. And she goes, She goes. our trade is now done. I wish you the best. But I have nothing else to say. And she kind of wanders, turns around and wanders off and goes back inside her big building. Um, and as she does, just the weight of her going, she's very large. She goes through this door, some of the sand caves in and buries the door a little bit. She was probably in there cool, staying cool because it was hot in the daytime, right? Even for a sphinx, covered in feathers and hair, right? You'd think. So that meant, okay, cool. We have to go inside this temple. So they make their word towards that. They decide at this point, they don't want to go in without resting. They've traveled throughout the day. They got here. They've gone through some stuff. Still haven't recovered from the last battle where they've got any rest. They decide they want to get a good night's rest. So they go back to that first building, barricade it up the best they can. Edwin casts a couple spells of protection, and they stay in there the rest of the night. Uh, or rest of the day into the evening to try to get a full night's rest. Which they're successful at doing. Nothing attacks them. Nothing affects them at that night. No creatures come out of the walls. And it's relatively cool in there. They got a good night's sleep. They are being very conscious about how much food and water they have. Uh, because again, they don't know when they're going to find more or how long they're going to be out here. So the next day, they climb out. Uh, the sand had blown up some during the night. They had to kick some of the sand out to get out the doorway, climb back out again. They gather up all their things and bring them with them, again, because they don't know where they're going next. And they know they have to go to the southwest to get to the Sultan's Scar, but they're like, we're going to go ahead and check this temple first, because <clears throat> in this temple, maybe we'll find something that helps. She thinks we might, but it's evil, so, you know, let's get our weapons and get ready to go. When they arrive at the building that she pointed out, it's... Pretty large, again, bigger than the building she was in. Uh, but again, very, very heavily buried. The front doors are closed, which is a bit of a problem because they're also half buried. It takes them uh, almost an hour and a couple of Edwin's spells to get the sand moved away. Because you think about a scoop of sand, the sand blows back in. It's not easy. To manage to get it up where Darsh uh, and Ulrich and Tevin together are able to pull it open enough that they can squeeze through. Darsh never likes this part, but Dandy goes in first. Mostly because he worries about her, but at the same time, you know, what kind of trouble could she get into? Uh, Dandy goes in first, and as soon as she starts to go to the door, she has to stop herself because she realizes there's a lot less sand inside. So she actually has to climb down a little bit to the floor. 
For everybody else, it's just a, a hop, and for us, it would be bad either, but she's being careful. She begins to check the room, and she doesn't set off or find any traps near the entrance, so she goes ahead and calls everybody else inside, and they join her. So, in this room, and they did have to make a strength check to get that open. It took several tries. Uh, the room itself is pretty dark, and it has a very stagnant smell to it. Um, the windows that were on the wall are completely filled with sand. Sand is poured in from them or laying on the ground, while the floor is mostly clear because it's wide. The sand has come down that way. Uh, let's see. There appears to be... Uh, there's a large altar on the opposite side of the room. Uh, and sure enough, above it is the carving. Uh, is a, a round desk carving uh, in what was probably a very intricate scorpion. Although, if it was painted or anything, that's worn off long ago. All right. So they don't... It's a, it's a room, and immediately, Dandy said, how big is the room? And I gave her the measurements. She goes, excellent. When we were outside, how big did the temple look? And I told her, she goes, this room is smaller than the temple. I search for secret doors. And that's, it was a good way to look at it. This room is nowhere near big enough to be that. Sure enough, they all start searching. And yes, behind the altar, Dandy does find a secret door. Uh, it takes Darsh's strength to, to move the, the door itself. It's not uh, quite as easy to open as it was. But he managed to push it aside. And sure enough, they're able to find, just by pushing in the stone door, there is a uh, narrow and short tunnel. Darsh is a little tight, going down in stairs, going down inside of the in, further. So they're like, okay, Dandy goes first, once again searching for traps. So, this temple, which is exactly what it is, it is a temple, uh, and bear with me because I'm, I'm grabbing something real quick. Oops, did I put that picture on there? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Give me a second. I did not mean to put that picture on there. There we are. So, they, uh, they're making their way in, and they're looking around. Danny's searching for traps. Doesn't find any, at least on the way down. But they do arrive into a large chamber. And once they arrive there, it's oddly shaped. Let me describe it. So this central chamber appears to have six small doors. Three on the wall on the left, three on the wall of the right. There is one large door ahead of them on the end of the other wall. From even from here, they light up. They have some torches at this point because it was dark before. So they have some torches up. In the torchlight, they can see that the door on the far end has a large metal scorpion carved onto this door. And the doors themselves appear to be metal. They haven't found a lot of metal at this point. Everything's stone and clay and so on. This is the biggest chunk of metal they've come across. They try to start looking at the small doors, but they don't get to. Because bursting out of the sound are several... Uh, two large man scorpions. So the man scorpions come out of the sand. I don't have a picture for man scorpions. Uh, it's what you'd ex what you experience. It's half man, half scorpion. I, I think you guys get that metal picture. They have to fight the man. It's just two of them. They attack. Uh, they're a little unexpected. Dandy didn't. They were technically they're not a trap. They were hidden. Uh, sometimes they can find it, but she wasn't searching at that time. Uh, and she felt bad for that later. But yes, they jump out and they attack. Uh, Dandy got a big hit and was poisoned by a scorpion tail, at which point uh, T 
Tevin had to heal that using a relatively good spell. Uh, spell slot for later. Uh, but they managed to fight. It's just the two of them. Uh, Darsh is able to take one while Ulrich and uh, Tevin take the other one. They have to heal Dandy afterwards. Because Dandy gets stabbed and she hits the ground. The poison's immediately make, hurting her. But Tevin can't stop to help her. Edwin pulls her out of the way. Well, Tevin's... Because Tevin's relatively... Again, he's buff. He's got his bonk stick and he's throwing some smacks himself. In combat, physically, he does more damage than Artemis does. Because uh, he does have some basic weapon skills and training from Draven. So... After they kill those, they get to get to look around the room a little bit better. Dandy's healed. She has to rest for just a little bit, but then she gets up. She searches the rest of the room. No other creatures, no other traps. The six doors each have a lever beside them. Looking at the, the lever, the thought is, okay, if we pull this lever, it's going to open a door. When they look at the large metallic scorpion... They can't open the doors locked because the, the metal legs of the thing are locked around it. Dandy searches it enough to say, yes, these legs are obviously a hinge. There's something that can make these legs open, but even Darsh isn't able to pry. He tries. He can't pry them open. It's just too strong. It's Because they're like, it's big. It's a big-ass scorpion-looking thing with its legs wrapped around. Uh, and if they were to unlock, you might be able to separate the two doors, but it's holding them closed. And they're like, well, it's got six legs, six hinges, and there's six doors behind us. I think we know what happens here. Because I'm nothing if not predictable. And so they're like, okay, we have to do this. So like, do we, let's try to open all the doors first. And they decide, they picked the door, opened it. Sure enough, when they do, the door itself doesn't open, but it unlocks enough that they can push it open. But once they do that, none of the other levers would move. So by choosing a door, they locked all the other ones. Okay, I guess we need to figure out what's in this door. So I'm going to give you just a brief overview of what kind of happened inside this temple. Because uh, some of it was puzzle-based, some things. Again, much, much like a, a minor, it was a minor dungeon, if you will. Uh, it was not meant to be a long-term, take-forever kind of thing. I think we knocked this all out in one session. Um, they go through the doors, uh, and I'll be honest, I don't remember which order they chose. But at the end of each room, uh, there would be a large wheel. And if, they if you could pull the wheel and turn it, it in fact caused a mechanism to open one of the legs. So sure enough, once that happened and the leg opened, all the room locks reset and you could pick another door. But it would only let you open one at a time. Um, so one of the rooms... Um, this was very trap-heavy. It's a very trap-heavy dungeon. Dandy was very busy here. Um, and so... Get that. So Dandy uh, was working her way through a lot of these. The first chamber they went into uh, had a classic pit trap in it and a pendulum trap. So I'm going to discuss this. Pit trap. You walk across it. It opens up. You fall into a pit. Usually spikes or something bad or something of that nature. In this situation, it was spikes. So pit trap... A pendulum trap is literally that blade that just goes back and forth you have to get through. So they had to walk, go through the pendulum trap in the tunnel that leads to the chamber at the end of the hall. So each one of these doors leads a hallway to a room. Once they get into the room, there's a pit trap. Uh, once they make it across the pit trap, which itself is kind of challenging, uh, they're able to get to the wheel. There was nothing to fight in there. 
uh, in the next chamber, uh, it was infested with thousands of scorpions. Literally, they open the room, and it's just crawling in scorpions. I like to compare it to uh, Indiana Jones, Rares of the Last Ark, in the room full of snakes, except scorpions. Uh, so in this situation, it was uh, Edwin having to cast spells to allow Dandy to get through. Uh, and he was literally casting flame spells, burning a section of the floor as she was trying to go through it, and then all the scorpions would come back. So he's kind of shooting flame bolts at the floor, giving her places to hop to. Um, let's see. The next room had a hammer drop trap. Hammer drop trap is usually one of two things. It's where two big things come down and squish you, or it's just one big log that comes down in front of your face and hits you and knocks you backwards kind of thing. Uh, there were several hammer drop traps, uh, and triggering one caused several to go off. It was kind of a domino effect. Uh, in the next chamber, uh, again, there were two more hidden man scorpions. Uh, the man scorpions themselves uh, are not intelligent. They act more like just animals. They, they have animal intelligence. So they don't have arms. Their hands are like pincers. Uh, so they're not wielding swords or anything like that. Um, how they got in and out of the temple is unexplained, but they dig through the sand. They can burrow. Um, the thought is that they were, they were magically put in here because they were magic. The answer to everything in Dungeons and Dragons. Let's see. Uh, the next chamber had a firewall burst trap. So a burst trap is when you set it off and normally something falls onto oil falls. And when it hits air, it bursts into flames, something of that nature. Uh, when this one fell, it burst... And it spread so that it triggered the walls. And the walls became flame. Um, which in itself, you wouldn't think that was that bad. But the room was very narrow at spots, and you had to get through it. And the whole walls ended up lighting up. And so it was a matter of trying to sneak... Dandy, it's again a very dandy dungeon. She had to try to sneak through these walls of flame, making dexterity checks to try to keep from being burned. Uh, the next chamber was just straight up quicksand. Because, you know... Why not use the classics when you have the opportunity? Uh, so <laughs> straight up quicksand. And they managed to uh, get through that pretty easily. Dandy found... That's not a trap, but Dandy was testing the sand. Because she kept waiting for more man scorpions to pop out. So... At, in each of these, when you get to the end, there's a big wheel. And sometimes it was just Dandy that could get there. And she had to struggle a bit to turn some of these wheels. They were obviously intended for several people... Or, you know, a Darsh. Uh, but Danny manages to, to get it pulled done one day or another. So, once they've opened up all of those six rooms, the doors on the, on the, the legs, the last leg unlocks, the doors itself will slide to the side. You can just grab the scorpion and pull it, but it was like ridges and the scorpion was, is attached to one wall and the legs are holding it to both. Uh, so when the legs came up, at that point, it was just a matter of sliding the doors separate. And they were on some type of hinge that when you pushed one, the other one moved as well. You've probably seen doors like that in your life. It's actually very rudimentary. I looked up how to do it. It's not that hard. It's a pulley system. Uh, but pushing one enough that they could get through. And this was a long chamber that turned. And uh, when they got to the end, it was a big double door, also metal. Dandy searched it for traps. Uh, this was uh, successful. She did not find any traps. Um, with the man scorpions, halfway through there, they started having Edwin testing 
for magic as well to see if they could find any more. And that's what saved their lives in this situation because casting detect magic on the doors let them know that they were magically trapped a lot. A lot. They didn't know what the traps were, but it took most of Edwin's spells at that point to dispel them, and several of them were not easy for him to do. He's, he's, he's okay at this point. He's got a little bit of boost from Tobias as well, with some magic items that he doesn't actually talk about. But uh, he manages to be able to do that. Uh, but they managed to get through, again, not very combat-based. It was a bit more puzzle uh, Dexter's very dandy-like again. This whole story, either uh, segments where each person is relatively useful and why they're here. Dandy is why this is why Dandy's in this group. So when they get into this room, there's nothing to fight. It's the end room. What they see is this room is very well decorated. There were probably a lot of great tapestries and things. Uh, probably a room of great prayer and such. There's an altar in the middle. And sitting upon it is a jeweled scorpion statue. Probably about a foot and a half in length. Probably about six, seven inches wide. Uh, and it is uh, made of what appears to be gold and silver. Uh, encrusted with gems and jewels. Dandy searches all over the place, cannot find a single trap anywhere. Evan uses his last detect magic. It's magical, but it's not magically trapped. But he is able to say that, yes, it's magical in some nature. Darsh is like, all right, everybody stand back. I'm going to take it. And he takes his sword out, and he tries to flip it up with his sword. So he wants to know if there's a mechanism. He's, he really thought I was going to Indiana Jones in there. Which, you know, it's a safe bet. It's something to be concerned about. But he flips it off with his sword and it just falls on the ground on the other side. Getting in here is the hard part. If you can get in here, you were fine. Uh, but they managed to uh, pick that up. And they don't know why it's important. Um, but they believe that it is. Obviously, I brought them here. Um, and it's after this that they're looking on the wall. They find writing and hieroglyphics. Looking writing kind of thing. And... Dandy and Edwin together start reading it, and sure enough, they read a story about um, a sultan who was uh, a great and powerful sultan, but had grown evil, and who had you know basically become dark and mistreating his people. That the people have rose against him, and instead of die losing, decided to destroy the entire city. And in a great magical power, the city was obliterated. But few survivors that were buried the sultan in the caverns of infinity. What that is or why it existed, it doesn't say anything like that. But what Edwin can say is that the writing on this wall is definitely newer than the wall. Don't get me wrong. It's still really, really old. But he's like, this was not originally here. This was carved into the wall after this place was built. So it wasn't part of the original construction. And it's it's not fancy. Like someone like this room's well decorated. You know what I mean? It, you know, it was. I mean, the way it was built, the altar's precision. There's nice glyphs or whatever on the sides of that. This someone's chiseled into the wall. And they're like, this was added after the fact. 
But that's the only information that they're able to get out of that. So they make their way back out. Would you like to see what the dungeon looked like? I have a picture. If you can see it. Hoping it'll focus. There you go. So that was what the uh, dungeon looked like. I, I, I didn't get a chance to send this to my computer or I could just show it. But That was the map for me. I'm sure you understand where the picture came from. Uh, but yes, that was the... Uh, that was the picture of that. So they make their way out and they decide that they're going to rest inside the uh, same house for the day and go out, leave town earliest night. Because now they're going to head south to that Sultan Scar. Or southwest, I believe I said it was. They're going to go that direction. Like, okay. So they rest the next day and that evening and they proceed to leave the valley. As they leave the valley, once they're out of it, past the stones, they've only been traveling 10 minutes before, ahead of them, they see a dude standing on the, standing there. Just a regular-looking dude, dressed in black, standing there, by himself. He's armed, but he doesn't have his weapons drawn. He's standing there with his arms crossed. At his feet is a small campfire. And he stands there, and he's obviously waiting for them. They don't draw their weapons, but they're cautious. Be careful. They made their way up. And when they arrive, when they finally catch up, he takes a seat by the fire and offers them to do the same. Everybody sits down, except for Darf. Darf just stands behind everybody. Darf is, you know, Playing it safe. The man's looking at them for a moment, but then he speaks in perfect common directly at Dandy. He says, You and your friends are very powerful. None have made it this far in generations. We have seen that defeating you in our normal ways is not something we're going to be able to do. So in this situation, I've decided to speak to you directly. He introduced himself. His name is Abd el-Kadir. I named that after something I'd seen somewhere because I knew it was a real name. I don't know where I got it from, but I, I, I want to say it was a... I thought I want to say it was somebody that I, I met through my old job, but um, that's his name. Uh, and he advised them that he leads the Black Sand. Again, he sees he's unable to defeat PCs in a standard manner, so and then he's decided to speak with them and ask them to turn around and leave. Not turn around and go back into the, the, the valley, but to leave this fool's errand alone and to return to their homes. And it will be better for everybody. They tell the same story to them. They said to the Sultan, we've been made aware that we have to get an item that's in there, that without that, the chance of saving our homes and the lives of thousands, we, it's not going to work. We have to have it. Seems a little taken back by that. He's like, he's like generally like, oh damn, that's that's a good reason. And he begins to tell them why they should not. He says that uh, a thousand years ago, the desert was ruled by this evil and powerful sultan, a name that he will not speak. <laughs> I, read, I wrote down here was cruel and a big meanie. Sometimes my notes are silly. 
Um, after years of abuse, the people finally rose against the sultan, equivalent of a mutiny. Other than being defeated, the sultan did in fact use his powers, which were strong, to destroy the kingdom, dying in the process and killing majority of his subjects. Some did survive. His body and all of his possessions, which were believed to be cursed, were locked inside the caverns of infinity with, uh, with all of his wealth and possessions. Uh, so he, his body was put in there by some of his followers because they believed that he would return one day by any surviving followers he had that did worship him like a god, hence the temple. At the same time, the black sand were created by those who rose against him and survived. Created with the sole purpose of protecting the cavern from ever being opened. Because the fear is that if, it, if he has somehow risen in there, if the cavern is opened, he could get back out. It's been over for over a thousand years. The black sand have killed anyone seeking the, ca the cavern. And again, he, will, he does everything he can to try to convince them not to go. But they explain their reason. They talk, they say, they talk about serenity, their kingdom and how it's grown. They talk about how the land was originally abused by its leader and how the pe they helped the people rise against them and they've used this to form a kingdom where people are safe. And now another overwhelmingly powerful dude, very much like the Sultan, uh, like Sultan Speaker, uh, who they can only say is of the same, you know, they, I can't say for sure, but he's also overwhelmingly powerful in magic, is now rising trying to destroy everything that they love and all the other kingdoms in that area. And that they and their friends are seeking the only few the few things that are the only chance of defeating them. Gadir is thinks about it. Like he's sitting talking. He's he says, You're the he goes, you're the first that I can he goes that way I can tell have come through here not for wealth or power. That's why people normally seek this. People are seeking his thing because they want to get all the wealth. Because it's there's a lot of wealth in there. Although, again, Black Sand and, and sort of believe it to be cursed. He says, I will not try to stop you. At the same time, for the concerns of my own people, I can't help you. But we will not stand in your way at this point. But you are obviously powerful. You obviously have skills. You've survived a lot. If you do go in there, kill him. If he's alive, kill him. Don't let him out. Even if that means your own lives. Because if you're going to die anyways, or even if you think you're going to escape with your thing, remember that the thousands of lives you're going trying to save, you'll be trading thousands of others. And is that really a cost that you can handle? And they, they're like, no, we, we, I, we're not willing to do that. We're not willing to sacrifice your people for our people. So if we get in there and he's alive, then yes, we'll do everything we can to destroy him permanently. Kadir stands up. And again, well, then I can, the only thing I can say is I wish you well on your adventure or on your, uh, on your quest. Um, no one has made it as far as you. I'm not sure what will come next for you, as no one stepped inside the caverns of infinity since the day his body was laid to rest. I know not what's inside. Um, 
But I hope you find what you're looking for and that you do not find what we fear, what we have all feared for Cosmic. So he wishes them well and he turns and he goes to leave. And again he goes, and most of all, blessings to you, Ariel. May once again, you and your people rise to save us all. And then leaves. Dane's like, wait, what What people? Excuse me? Er, who? What people did you mention? And then he's gone. Because I was just screwing Dandy at this point. I, I know totally what, but I just kept not telling her. Because <laughs> it's important later, maybe. But, they just then get up and start heading towards the Sultan's Scar, which is this deep, deep ravine of things that they'll have to deal with inside. But we won't get to the ravine this week because it's 1041 and it's time to call it a day. So uh, next Thursday, episode 51, we'll begin with them entering the Sultan's Scar and finding out whether or not the Sultan that has been feared for a thousand years is in fact waiting for them inside. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed today's adventure. Uh, it's still blowing my mind that this is episode 50. Like, that's a lot. That is a lot. Two and a half to four hours each. That's a lot of time of story. For those of you who've listened to it all, bless you. <laughs> I said, that's a lot of story to get through. I, again, I know I've said this many times. I never dreamed it was going to take this long to tell the story. But I've never told it in this much detail either. So it's... Uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So I look forward to continuing the story uh, all the way up to episode 100. Like, I, I, I don't have any intention of ending it at any given point. So uh, hopefully, uh, when we finally get to the stuff that I'm writing new, uh, it will come across as well as the stuff that I've wrote, written as of old. So thank you so much for coming. Again, if you enjoyed the story, whether you're listening it to it today, tomorrow, 10 years down the road, please remember to click like. Subscribe if you're new here so you can listen to all of our adventures and streams and such. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, if you can give it a like, a follow, uh, five stars, a review, anything you'd like to do, uh, would definitely appreciate it. Interestingly enough, I think my Spotify stats can't be that accurate because it's like following it as a whole are like 44 people. But according to the stats, it says all of them are women between... 28 and 36. So I'm not sure the demographics that it's viewing are all accurate. Because I know a couple people that are following them that do not fit that. <laughs> so, interestingly enough. But, yeah, uh, maybe it's just because there's not as many people It's having a harder time coming up with the analytics. But it's still kind of fun. So, iTunes and Spotify are a place you can go to hear these things. Audio. Up, episode 48 is the most recent one. 49 will be going up tomorrow. And then 50 will be going up by the weekend. Uh, so, uh, I've been catching up on those. I had a little bit of editing issues with one of them that kind of delayed me by a week, but I'm, I've got them all pretty much done, except for i got to edit this one tomorrow. So, uh, thank you all for coming. Again, as always, special thank you to my members for your constant support of both the channel, the content, and the Merge World stuff. Uh, I enjoy sharing it with you, and it's my favorite thing to do, so thank you for giving me that opportunity and for letting me get to 50 episodes of all this. My goodness, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> And of course, an extra special thank you to my moderators for all the hard work they do. Boom! Oh, look at that for timing. 
Lost Dog Third Alt. <laughs> Just hit their fifth month as a member. <laughs> the auto renew kicked in. That's awesome. What a great way to end. Well, thank you all so much for coming. I am going to call this a day. Have yourself a great one. I'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m., I want to say. Let me check for sure. Yes. Tomorrow I will be back at 11 a.m. to 2, uh, where we will be busting into the newly released, which is coming out tomorrow, uh, Subnautica uh, Below Zero. Gets his full release tomorrow. And then tomorrow night we'll be back for some more Minecraft Sky Factory 4. So hopefully we'll see you then as well. Have yourselves a wonderful evening. And thank you for listening to my story. You guys have yourself a great day.